Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless, winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million women worldwide who have joined Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you the bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. What is up? Welcome into another episode of Talking Ball. It is Monday, September 12th, week one of the NFL in the books. And Quinn, I got to say, I'm extremely glad to have football back. This weekend was awesome watching all the games. But I had a fucking bad week. <laughs> I had a bad time. It was great to have football back, but I had a bad time. Um, that Notre Dame Marshall game. So one, a little backstory. We were like short staffed on the analysis side of like the people grading games. So I'm like, oh, sure, I'll grade, I'll help out. I'll grade a game on a Saturday. I'll spend my Saturday grading multiple games. I had, I got assigned Notre Dame Marshall. So after that game, I had to go back and watch it again and grade everything that happened. And then I got assigned USC Stanford. So I had to watch USC trounce Stanford. I had to watch USC win. And I had to watch Notre Dame get uh, embarrassed on national TV once again. Uh, pretty rough. A and also to add insult to injury. The Packers then on Sunday do nothing offensively. And I lost in the cornhole semifinals in the worst game of cornhole I've ever played in my entire – not the worst game I've ever played, but the worst I've lost in a game of cornhole. I knew we were screwed. So it was a two-day tournament. Won a few games on Thursday. Came back Saturday for the semifinals, hoping to get to the finals, hoping to win this tournament. I should have known we were in trouble when the team we played showed up with their own cornhole bags. Um, and first game beat us 21 nothing. It was pretty embarrassing. Uh, it was best of three. Second game was a little closer still. Uh, lost in two games, so – that's how my weekend went. Quinn, yours didn't seem too much better on Sunday, though. No, that Bengals game was tough. It was fun. I had the uh, the PFS seats, which are in the club, the like the club level, and the suites. weather worked out. Weather, and the weather was perfect. Yeah, perfect. So, I mean, that was cool. But uh, I maybe I'll get it up next episode. But there's a video of me. Um, I was on the floor of mm. the suite. Of the suite when the when the, they missed the extra point. So, it not great. But I mean, again, like. Those sweet tickets are nice. It was a nice day. I, I, like, I'm glad I went. It just it was so, sucked. So at where I live, down at the banks, one, apparently I'm so close to the Paul Brown Stadium that I can't stream this year because the NFL has some weird-ass rule where if you're in an NFL stadium that you can't use NFL Sunday ticket. And so I'm trying to stream Sunday ticket, and it keeps thinking I'm in the NFL stadium. So that sucked uh, on Sunday, figuring that out at 1 p.m. and scrambling to get all the games on. But – Watching the so streaming the Bengals game in our place is literally behind the street. So every time in the first half we're like watching the game in our place, you can hear the street explode because uh, right above like the big outdoor TV there down at the banks that's on uh, the Red Stadium, a Great American, 
And so I hear the street explode. And so for the whole like end of the fourth quarter, we're like hanging out our balcony watching on the street because it's going to get ruined for us, whatever the play is, by the street. And so we had to watch this roller coaster uh, at the end. But that was it was fun to watch. Not fun, the result, but it was definitely a fun to watch experience. It reminded me a lot of that Packers game last it was year. The same, it was the same game. Yeah, just like very fluky, a lot of missed kicks. Just like your butthole puckered the entire time, and yep. it's not fun. Yep. It's not a good puckering. It's just a pure sweat down to the end. And, well, same result for the Bengals in this one. Uh, let's get into the show, though. Uh, no talking ball today. No real storylines to break down because we're just going to get into the games. We're going to do one take. Talking ball is literally talking ball. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's always, it's always kind of talking ball. Uh, but one take. So one take on every team. Uh, the one biggest takeaway from every team, from every game this weekend. Um, the fun to watch. And we're also adding an honorary this week, not fun to watch uh, segment. We're doing first round locks and we're doing football Jason Power Rankings. And then we have Eric Galco, Shrine Bowl director. He's going to be out at the end of the show. Had a nice, long conversation with him. Make sure to tune into that one. But that will be after all of this. So let's dive into one take. Let's kick it back to Thursday night, which feels like forever ago. Feels like so much football ago for my eyes. Had to give it a little refresher this morning, catch back up on it, watch a little bit more of that just to make sure I saw what I saw on Thursday night. But the Bills, biggest takeaway from the Bills, 31-10 victory. They cover the spread. They were two-point favorites. The under hits in a 52.5 under there, only 41. Um, biggest takeaway is Bills are as advertised. That was, you know, everyone in their mother's Super Bowl pick. We number one ELO that. rankings. We clowned the well, NFL Network for that graphic. And no, I, I'm accurate. saying like it was, it was a little like weird, right? Like there's so, there's a lot of good teams. They are not to me. They're still not like a clear tier above some other teams in the AFC, as we'll get to, um, with you know the Chiefs and how they looked in Week One, but. They are there. Like they, there's, there's not a lot of flaws to this team. One of my other big takeaways is Josh Allen needs a cool nickname because what he is capable of on a football field and just taking over a game and like doing it himself, whether it's the running of the football, the passing of the football. I, I sound like a fucking noob saying the running of the football there. That was pretty embarrassing. Whether it's just like he will beat you in any way he wants to beat you. Um, and that needs a cool nickname. I, I I would vote for something like the Terminator. I think that's a sick nickname no matter any time he gets it. But he needs like him, him or him and Stefan Diggs, the combination needs a cool nickname. There just needs to be something around them because uh, he's too good. He's too talented of a dude just to go by Josh Allen. That's too, too boring first of a name, name guy. For yeah, it's too boring of a name for what he brings to the table. Um, so as advertised, and I have to give a shout out to this D-line as well. Their, their second string D-line could be a starting defensive line in the NFL. I mean, it was their second string D-line of Boogie Basham, A.J. Epinesa, Tim Settle, uh, Jordan Phillips. I think that's better than what the Falcons threw out last year. Now, the Falcons made some upgrades, so maybe not, but that's better than some D-lines we've seen throughout the NFL, and that's their second string. That's a deep unit. So, yeah, Bills, biggest takeaway, as advertised. Rams, on the other hand, biggest takeaway, that O-line's in trouble. No Andrew Whitworth walking through that door. Andrew Joseph Nopum earned 44.7 pass blocking grades first game david edwards 6.9 brian allen 48.9 coleman shelton 70.9 rob havenstein 51.1 that's not that's not getting it done and we talked about this and it's just football last week if you aren't watching the daily show make sure and go check that out but it's stafford's elbow was probably like probably a little overblown i don't think that was the reason why they struggled now is it an issue probably also but this O line is going to make his is going to make his internal clock speed up. 
Because if you're doing that, if that you're getting that over, mismatched against the Bills, there's going to be a lot of teams that are going to be mismatching you. Then you know you're going to you're going to struggle with a lot of defensive lines around the NFL. So Rams, tough showing out the gate. That old line's in trouble. That's my biggest takeaway. All right, Colts Texans tie. Started off the season on just the worst foot. That's just not what you want to say. I don't care what you're a fan of whatever team. Tying week one is brutal. Bengals are almost in that boat. But 2020, the final score there, Texans cover is a seven and a half point dog. The under hits, even despite 70 minutes of football, still go under 46 in that game. My biggest takeaway for the Colts is that they need a wide receiver too. You know, Michael Pittman's great. Love Michael Pittman. Went for over 100 in this game. But then no one else stepping up. Alec Pierce, a couple drops. Paris Campbell's just not, you know, he's always going to be the slot guy. Kind of like get it in his hands let him run. He's not your pure go-to, number two, like separator. Now, Pierce can be. You know, he had some nice routes. Got open a couple times. You know, had the one in the end zone that he should have hauled in. Did drop. It should have been a touchdown. But until they get a reliable number two, you're just going to have games like that where the run game's on. Michael Pierce, Michael Pittman, excuse me, is doing his thing. But Matt Ryan needs a second guy to step up, and that's kind of been the Colts' weak link for a while. Obviously, why they were so high on Pearson draft in the second round, but he needs to figure that out quick because you're not competing with the Bills in the AFC. You're not competing with the Chiefs in the AFC. You're not competing with these other teams unless you can put a points in the scoreboard, and without a number two wide receiver, they're not putting up points at that clip, in my opinion. All right, Texans on the other side of the ball. They had a damn good draft. That's my biggest takeaway. Stingley and Petrie were making plays. Petrie was all over the place. Ten tackles, and he also missed five more. And now some of that's, you know, Jonathan Taylor. A lot of people are going to be missing tackles Jonathan Taylor. Hard first intro to the NFL in terms of, hey, tackle this guy. Tackle the, you know, one of the biggest size speed freaks in the league. Um, so not going to kill him too much. But he did have 15% missed tackle rate at Baylor. Could be a bit of an issue for him. But I'll take the guy who's around the ball 15 times, you know, missing five tackles, making 10 more as opposed to the guy who's around the ball five times and maybe making every tackle. Like Petrie was all over the place. And then Derek Stingley, the pass breakup in the end zone, uh, a number of good plays in that game. Definitely impressed with him. And that's where you're going to want to have a good draft if you're the Texans with their secondary, what it's been, you know, dating back to the Deshaun Watson years. Nailing a safety and a corner in your first and second round picks. I think the Texans are on the right path here. My one take for each of those. All right, next game up here. Jaguars lose at Washington. Commanders 22-28. to They lost. Commanders end up covering a three-point spread. The game goes uh, over, I believe, 43.5-point spread. Uh, so, Commanders, biggest takeaway. Wentz. Wentz is basically Heineke. I mean, this was what we saw. He's like a, like a souped-up version of Taylor Heineke. Two turnover-worthy plays, three big-time throws, roller coastery game, very up and down. It's just going to have to embrace it. <laughs> you know, it, it, Commanders fans are probably sick of it by now, but shit, that's where you're at the quarterback position from you know, Fitzmagic to Heineke to Wentz to all these guys in a similar mold. With that defense, not really what you want, but it's just what it's going to be. Other side of the ball, the one take for the Jags. What, adding one Brandon Scherf was not enough. They, they allowed pressure on 21 to 45 dropbacks. They, they were I, – I thought Lawrence looked good for a good portion of this game. You know, definitely some improvements. Kind of boned me on that under-interception prop with having to heave one up 
late because they gave up that lead, but I, I thought he was fine. Um, definitely looked like a different, a considerable step up from the guy we saw last year when you know things weren't going well. 20, 21 pressure dropbacks is a, a hell of a lot. That's, that's difficult to overcome. Damn near 50% of your dropbacks is not viable conditions to perform at a high level at the quarterback position. It's just not. No, no one's going to. So for Trevor Lawrence to even keep them in that game, to have a respectable stat line at the end of the day, uh, ended up going 24-42, 275 yards, one touchdown, and again, that late pick with a dropped Travis Etienne touchdown on a fourth down. That was a fucking brutal drop. Jesus. Travis did not have a great game in receiver, did not have a great game in pass protection, not ingratiating himself to the NFL very well in his very first game. But this offensive line still not to the level you want to be protecting a franchise quarterback. That's my one take. All right, Bears, 49ers, Bears, wow. Upset in a monsoon. Bears win 19-10. to 10. Cover a 6.5-point dogs. Win outright, 6.5-point dogs. Under hits, 38 points. Was the over-under in that game? The Bears' one take is this is going to have to be the big play offense. That's what it's going to have to be. You're going to want to win games with Justin Fields and even kind of going forward, building this team. And we'll actually get to that in the mailbag segment because uh, someone, oh, which I forgot to mention off top, that I effed up. So someone asked about, you know, how do you want to build around Justin Fields? It's going to have to be a big play offense. You're going to have to build a track team, I, I think, is your best bet get guys that can win down the football field. And I think they're buying into that. You know, like, you already got one in Darnell Mooney. Obviously, draft one in Bayless Jones, see how he plays out in terms of, you know, impact on the football field. Didn't do much this week. Um, but I, I do think that that's what it's going to have to look like. It's going to have to look like the Dante Pettis play. It's going to have to look like explosive plays down the football field because that's what fields can bring. He can give you – he can force defenses – to put numbers towards the line of scrimmage, force heavier boxes, force more underneath because of his speed, because of his athleticism, because he can scramble and pick up a lot of yards at a moment's notice, or do some work in the option game that can give you favorable numbers in the run to where then he attacks on the football field and creates big plays. Now, some of them were fluky in this game, obviously, but that's what it's going to have to be. Um, if you're looking for, like, takeaways from a game in a monsoon, the takeaway is Soldier Field's... <laughs> Turf is shit. That's the takeaway. They're fucking moving to Arlington ASAP after that contract or whatever is up, as soon as they get a stadium built over there, because the drainage was a disaster. Puddles on an NFL field. I can't remember the last time I've seen that, but I, that's that's my it. conspiracy theory is that they did that on purpose. On purpose? Yeah. They were, just they to they were be pumping like, water from underneath. Yeah, or just like didn't told the grounds crew, like, hey, Don't take Sunday off. Yeah. You know? Because we want to try to... Well, the Bears grounds crew has been taking a lot of Sundays off. So I don't think they had to tell them twice for that. But Jesus, um, that feels so bad. It's like, it's a a running joke, but it's it's actually horrible. Um, On the other hand, 49ers. My biggest takeaway is you have to give Lance time. The dude has 493 career dropbacks between college and the NFL. 493. That's... Not even every, you know, every rookie quarterback last year, like that's not even as much as you would get in a full NFL season. He does not have a full season of play under his belt, whereas he's going up against guys with decades of experience. 
who've seen it. Like he just hasn't seen enough to know. Like you got to give him the time. And that was always the worry when that was the guy they made the play to move up for is, you know, the least NFL ready one in terms of what the learning curve could look like. But you just, you can't have Jimmy G, you can't play this game where, and I know they have Jimmy G as the insurance policy there, but it can't be, that can't be like option B if Lance falters. It's no, it's only one option. It's option B if Lance physically cannot play. That's the only time you could play Jimmy G in my opinion, because that's how, because you know where Jimmy G can take you and it's not over the hump. So you have to sort of ride this out. And now again, it's fucking pouring rain. You're trying to evaluate a quarterback in those conditions. It just, I think that's a fool's errand. I don't think that's fair to him to say, you know, yeah, it was a bad game. Not a lot of quarterbacks are going to play a good game in that condition. So you have to ride it out. No quick trigger is what I is my one big takeaway. You just got to give him the reps. He's got to learn trial by fire. Unfortunate that it had to happen this way, but I will say this: silver lining. Rest of the AFC West kind of looked like shit this week too, barring Seahawks and Monday Night Football. So, 49ers for as rough as it was, losing to the Bears, who a lot of people are calling you know one of the worst teams in the NFL. You're not too far behind the eight ball after that. All right, next up. Dolphins, 20. Patriots, 7. Dolphins cover the 3.5-point spread under hits in that game, 46.5 by a good margin. Dolphins, my biggest takeaway, my one take, there's even more to this offense to be unlocked. Tua didn't play well. <laughs> I don't think Tua played well, and they like quite easily handled or moved the ball on this Patriots defense. You know, Bill Belichick coach defense. Two ends up with a 53.3 overall grade. I, but the stat line is 23 of 33 for 270 and a touchdown. <laughs> you know, like the, the ball was moved. The offense did well, 104.4 passer rating. And it's because, what I've been saying all offseason, the separators they have on the outside, out of this world. The catch Tyreek Hill made. The catch Tyreek Hill made in traffic is why he's Tyreek Hill and everyone's searching for Tyreek Hill and can't find him. It's because he can completely make you miss. Lake, you look silly. Have you not touched him the entire route? Oh, and then if it is thrown into a contested window, he's going to pull it down one-handed over top of you because his ball skills are kind of insane for a guy that size. So, yeah, there's, there's more left to this Dolphins offense. There are, there, are, there are multiple miscommunications up front along this offensive line. That led to some pressures that I think can still get cleaned up. Like I think the talents there, Tron Arms definitely great. Um, and there's more, there's more throws open down the football field. Fucking like four plays into the game, to a to a turn down Tyreek Hill with a hand up on a deep post that would have been a score. Like Tyreek was there, to a turned it down to go for the wheel route to a fullback, which not where I'm looking if I'm Tua, but didn't turn out for him either. It was, it was incomplete. But this, there's more. There's another gear to this Dolphins offense that we haven't even seen yet, and they just kind of took the Patriots to the woodshed. So um, hats off to Mike McDaniel and company. Patriots, on the other hand, one take. It just isn't that talented of a football team. This is kind of what we said post-free agent spending spree circa 2021 spring, is that, yeah, they added a lot of players. Yeah, they were upgrades. How many difference makers? You know, Matthew Judon, 
probably a difference maker, like a guy you can trust to make a play. Maybe Kyle Duggar, maybe Christian Barmore, if those guys t- you know take steps forward as we see as this like season goes on. Where's that guy in offense though? Yeah, Jacoby Myers fine. But Jacoby Myers had a hell of a catch in traffic in that game, but like Devontae Parker is not that reliable, you know, guy you know can make a play in the crunch time when it counts. Nelson Angler's not that guy. They, they just don't have a lot of difference makers on this roster. And if they were in the NFC, I, I could see them sneaking into a playoff spot, but there's too much talent in the AFC right now. And, and I think we just saw it in this game. They were overmatched from a talent perspective against the Miami Dolphins. You know, Mac Jones played better than Tua. I don't think that's even really a debate from that game. Didn't matter. <laughs> Dolphins have too much. Patriots don't have enough. That's just my. That's what it looked like on tape. We'll see if that turns around as the season goes on, but I just don't see this Patriots team really being a contender. All right, next up, Baltimore Ravens. New York Jets, Ravens win 24-2-9, cover the six-and-a-half-point spread. The under hits as well. That was a 44 points was the over-under in that game. And the Ravens, biggest takeaway for them, this defensive line looks considerably improved from what we saw last year. Now, they were throwing out a lot of real young guys last year, whether it was you know Justin Matabuke in year two, Odafe Owe in year one. Like There was a lot of youth that those guys both looked like they t- took steps forward. And then you add Michael Pierce to that defensive line as well. And we've always raved about their secondary. You know, when fully healthy, secondary is great. They were the number one ranked secondary in PFF rankings heading into the season. Again, kind of assuming full health there. But in this game, Matabuke had four pressures. Michael Pierce, excuse me, five pressures for Justin Matabuke. Defense tackle there. Michael Pierce, four. Justin Houston, elder statesman, six. Dafe Owe, I believe, four, five in that game. So... If this D-line comes to play like that, and, and now the Jets' offensive line has obviously had some injuries, starting some backups in that game, but this D-line comes to play like that, this, this Ravens' defense will be difficult to move the football on consistently. So that's a that's good start for the Ravens. You know, in an in a AFC North division where everyone else was playing close games, taking it down to the wire, Ravens handled the Jets on the road. So good win for them. Jets, on the other hand, trying to look for some positives here. Obviously, anytime you're starting a backup quarterback, you're not really expecting to look good offensively. So not going to say too much on that side of the ball, but I'll say this. Their top five picks played like it in this game. Sauce Gardner, two targets, one catch, eight yards, pass breakup. Looked the part. You know, when you'd have a top five pick corner, that's what you want them to look like out the gate. Not even getting tested on the outside. And they had some snaps where they threw him in to mark, you know, cover Mark Andrews in the slot, had him track him a little bit on third downs. Curious to see if they do more of that as the season progresses. Excited to see that. But he's as advertised. And the other one, Quinn Williams, 92.5 overall grade, highest of his career. Quinn Williams, year four, heading into that year five. They already picked up his option. Looking for that second contract. A motivated Quinn. Could this be? That it's that'll be big. And obviously it's Right now, with again, backup quarterback in, you're looking for more player evaluation, more coordinator evaluation than you are win-loss because I just don't think the win-loss is ever going to reflect until you get Zach Wilson back. Bet Jets-unders. 
That's your big takeaway. That's probably fair. That's probably a lot of Jets unders, at least until Zach Wilson gets back. Slam in the under there at 44. All right. Next one up here Eagles Lions. Very hashtag fun to watch game. Two of the top five offenses this week in EPA per play. Eagles win, though, 38 to 35 on the road. Don't quite cover the five and a half point spread. Great teams cover, just like the Lions did all last year. Hit the over at 48. Not a lot of overs. I think overs went. I think there's only five overs that hit this week. There were not a lot. Um, my Eagles take, I think A.J. Brown got almost underrated in the trade in his impact, if that's possible. Because he's he really is the perfect wide receiver for Jalen Hurts. He excels the exact point of the field at the routes, doing the things that Jalen Hurts is good at too, working the intermediate area of the football field. Jalen Hurts can feather it in between linebackers and safeties, work that area, and that's that's A.J. Brown's bread and butter. Obviously, he goes over 100 yards in the game. Looks like kind of established himself as the clear favorite. 11 targets, 155 yards, 10 catches. Clear favorite of Jalen Hurts, and again, with good reason. Um, I think we forget that he's still like in year four. You know, if, if there was like a top 50 – you know, if there's a 51st overall pick and he's had, you know, a few good seasons or a few, like, promising seasons, you, you would think, like, year four, a guy's still improving. You know, pretty much every position in the NFL, year four, guys you're thinking are still improving. But A.J. Brown, you kind of just, like, assume static commodity because he's been so good because he has gone three straight 1,000-yard seasons to start his career. But, shit, he might get even better. The dude's only 25. He, he may still be improving. So – that's my takeaway. He was fucking awesome in that game. And then our biggest take, one take for the Lions is like no more moral victories this season. That was fine last year. But I'm sure Dan Campbell's probably saying the same thing right now. But no more moral – like that's, that's a loss still. Like you, you, they got to start putting up something in the, Vic, the W column for me to get on board. And I had higher hopes for this Lions defense. And now 38's a little misleading. They threw a pick six. Uh, that was a little miscommunication that Jared Goff bounced into James Bradbury's hands. But defense needs to show up a little bit more than that because they've invested a lot in that side of the ball in terms of draft capital. Malcolm Rodriguez looked good, though. I will say that. Rodrigo, which I hate that nickname. Doesn't even make sense. Dude showed up. Um, all right, Saints-Falcons. Saints, 27. Falcons, 26. It was a tight one. Falcons kind of gave that one up at the end, if we're being honest. But they still cover, five-and-a-half point spread. And the over hits in this one, 43-and-a-half. My one take for the Saints, go, though, this wide receiver core is built for coming from behind. Like, they, they actually have the ability now to win like that. Last year, they didn't. And obviously, last year, after James Winston went out, they 100% didn't. But they did not have a, hey, we're going to pass type of team and we're going hey the defense knows we're going to pass and we're going to be successful with it they did not have that last year whether it was the two touchdowns from Michael Thomas over AJ Terrell they didn't have a guy who was making that play last season whether it was Jarvis Landry's turkey hole catch where he kind of lulls the corner to sleep by jogging the first half of the route and then turns it on towards the end there and a hell of a throw from James Winston they did not have those guys last year that made those plays so as much as you might think, or you see the score, and you're like, oh, shit, are we worried about the Saints barely beating the Falcons? I kind of came out of this game encouraged 
because the Saints offense looked like they can, you know, flip that switch and say, you know, we've been kind of shitty. You've kind of been batting it around. Things haven't really gone our way this whole game. Let's turn it on. And they did enough to win this game. So I, I do think this was more encouraging than discouraging if I'm a Saints fan. On the other hand, flip side of the ball, one take for the Falcons. They got the they have the pieces, they got the two pieces in play to play. Let me let me restart that one. They got two pieces for Arthur Smith's offense in Kyle Pitts and Drake Lynn. Drake Lynn looks good. Like this is an offense predicated on play action, attack the middle of the field. Play action, attack the middle of the field. Play action, attack the middle of the field. Nearly 50% of Marks Mariota's dropbacks in the game were play action. And now Mariota did some nice things in the run game. And I, I think his him being back there helps Cordero Patterson. You saw Cordero Patterson have a good game. But I think, you know, as a passer, Marks Mariota is still not where you want to be. They're still going to be looking for upgrades. And this is, I said this on It's Just Football, this is a game that Nate months, if you're a Falcons fan, if you're a Falcons GM, if you're a Falcons decision maker, you're going to kind of be thankful that it didn't probably end up in the win column. You know, as much as it sucks right now, when you're looking at the difference between getting a Bryce Young and not getting a Bryce Young, or getting a C.J. Stroud and not getting a C.J. Stroud, eight months from now, you might be, you might be happy that this one turned out the way it did. Um, but yeah, Kyle Pitts and Drake London, that's it. For Arthur Smith's offense, and again, a lot of inbreakers, a lot of catches in traffic, a lot of guys working that area between linebackers and safeties, and a lot of play action. Those are pieces that you love for this offense. So they're not they're not too far away. Quarterback is the one piece still missing. All right, on the Browns Panthers, where fuck, I don't know why I bet on the Panthers. I don't know why I even I don't know why I talked myself into a Ben McAdoo coached offense. But Browns take it 26-24 in a last-second field goal, obviously covering that as one-and-a-half-point dogs on the road. Over hits in this one, 42 was the over. Um, my Browns takeaway is Stefanski's still a wizard. It, he's, st- he's still a very good play caller. He's schemed around a fucking bad quarterback all last year and was still in the playoff hunt. He's going to scheme around Jacoby Brissett. They, very, they could be in the mix. It, everyone kind of wrote him off after, you know, Deshaun Watson suspended two-thirds of the season. But they can beat bad teams. This They should, they just did it right there. Um, over 200 yards on the ground, 13 broken tackles, O-lines travel. That O-line's going to travel. The run blocking will travel. So, yeah, the, the Browns are still very much built to compete. If they can hold their head above water, get above 500 heading into Deshaun Watson coming back, I'd be afraid if I'm the rest of the SC. I just, I would. Other side of the ball here, Panthers, one take. This offense is horribly set up for Baker Mayfield right now. Whatever I saw on tape this week was not what I would be. His average depth target is 5.6 yards. It, it was a quick passing plan of attack for a six-foot-tall quarterback. He had four batted passes. What, what do you expect? You can't run a lot of quick game with a guy who can't fucking get the ball above his offensive line without some space. Like, you see, you know, how Arizona schemes around Kyler gives them these deep dropbacks. Like, you, you can't run quick slants with a zero-step drop from the gun with a six-foot-tall quarterback. He's going to splash into the defensive line all day long. So, 5.6 average depth of target, 5.6-yard average depth of target. 
23.3% of the route, the targets pass the sticks, and a 2.52 average time to throw is not the offense I'm calling for Baker Mayfield. So until that shit changes, I, I, you're going to see this Panthers offense look a little anemic at times, I think. Now, were they trying to scheme around deficiencies along the offensive line? Possibly. Like it, Maybe we don't see that game plan every week. Maybe they just thought they were so overmatched that they didn't want to get you know, Miles Garrett to pin his ears back and really just get after Baker Mayfield. Sure, but that's I would scheme around in a different way because that's offense ain't going to work with Baker. All right. On the game that Quinn doesn't want to hear me talk about, we're going to talk about it here. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers, 23-20 to 20 victory over Cincinnati Bengals here at home. Bengals do not cover that seven-point spread. Under hits, though, 44.5 points despite overtime. Two overtime unders hitting this week. For the Steelers, though, I mean, that was a Pyrrhic victory, right? That was not – losing T.J. Watt for the season is losing kind of your hopes of competing for the season. Because the offense didn't look good. Like, you're in this game because T.J. Watt was a fucking menace. That guy was everywhere in that game. Because Micah Fitzpatrick was everywhere in that game. That is why they have a one in the win column. And now being down one of those guys is, for more than likely the rest of the season, he obviously walks over the sideline and says, I tore it, uh, tore my pec. So we'll see how the MRI turns out. But I think I trust T.J. Watt's feeling of how his pec feels to tell me they probably tore his pec. So, yeah, that's just, if you're a Steelers fan, obviously love to win any division game. But that one's spirit victory. All right, Bengals, feel the Bengals. Fuck, I mean, it sucks. But my one take is I'd be unfazed. I, I, I think the biggest worry is that the O-line did not look improved, you know? Like, it, they were not the drastic step up that we were used to. Obviously, Cordell Volson, seven pressures in that game. Jonah Williams, though, seven pressures. Like, the guys who were having tough games were not the guys you would usually expect to have tough games. I guess Cordell Volson is, but jo- Jonah Williams was better than that last year. So, Joe Burrow was much, much better than that. Worst game of his career. Four interceptions, fumble, and it's still – Took a backup long snapper, effing one up. Your left end on the field goal block team, effing one up. And then a bad chase goal line call. A bad call on the chase near touchdown at the goal line that then they didn't overturn or didn't even challenge to lose that game. No T. Higgins either. And T. Higgins getting hurt. He was out, yeah. yeah. Which we talked about on, I think it was the first episode. Dude, about yeah, Mike how, Thomas like, yeah. clanging one off his hands in the end zone. Way seven, to make the most of that off, dude. Seven targets, two catches, a drop, 49.7 overall grade. That's just, that's not getting it done. Yeah, that's the worry, no right? No depth. Yeah. They, they, they do not. Um, so, hopefully T. Higgins back sooner rather than later. All right, let's get the, the AFC West here, 4 o'clock slate. Chargers Raiders. Chargers win 24-19. Cover the three-and-a-half point spread. Under hits, though. Under was 52-and-a-half in that game. My one take for the Chargers, they got to put some teams away, man. What was it? Last five drives, Herbert had 20 passing yards. Five-point lead with 4.32 to go when they got the ball back. After Raiders touchdown, they three-and-out it. I, get, I think Keenan Allen was out at that point in the game, but, like, that was why – like, that was your M.O. last year. Step on some throats when you get a lead like that. You know, that's five minute drive territory. You gotta 
get a couple first downs there and salt that game. Get in the field goal range, end it right there. End it with your offense. End it with like the unit that you think is your best unit is what's making you a Super Bowl contender. But once again, letting teams hang around a little too much. Obviously, I get away with it because here's the flip side. One take for the Raiders, just Carr ain't got that dog in him. That was a direct quote from Austin Gale in the in the game, and I I could not help but disagree or with but agree. Five turnover worthy plays for Carr on the day, and obviously some of that's the O line, a couple of fumbles in there, bad ball security in those turnover worthy plays. But the pick to Callahan was pretty brutal. The pick to Samuel was f- so underthrown to to Devontae Adams. I mean Adams, that was probably ten yards underthrown. Adams could have got about five yards deep in the end zone with no one touching him but Carr uh short of that one just Carr's gonna have to do better than that to get him in the mix that's not good enough when you're trying to compete in the AFC West this year he's just gonna have to show up and and again it's gonna be tough find that offensive line no doubt but paid him a lot and he's gonna show up and now obviously Devontae Adams just showed up that was fucking sick game from him but yeah Carr um needs to be better it's just that's fortunately i'm not sure he's he's going to be that just that's why he is considered that you know tier three kind of of quarterback in the nfl but we shall see all right chiefs cardinals laugher the biggest blowout of the week at least in terms of like i don't i don't think it was didn't end up being or did it end up being actually by score it did end up being actually by score, the biggest blowout as well. Wow. 44 to 21. Really not even as close as that suggests. Chiefs cover six and a half point spread over hits at 53 and a half. And my biggest takeaway for the Chiefs is just that Mahomes spreading the ball is a good thing. Five different players this week with at least four targets. That happened like twice all of last season. Now, are the big plays going to be there every week the way they were against the Cardinals? No, I think some of that's on the Cardinals. And we'll get to them in a second here. But Mahomes being able to just work within the offense because he's so good at operating and finding where the ball needs to go and basically manipulating defensive backs, getting to the correct read and opening those things up in the offense that if he's not, doesn't have to go to Tyreek Hill. He doesn't have to go to just Travis Kelsey. If he trusts numerous guys, it's it's scary. And the Cardinals found out that, that out the hard way. But on the flip side of the ball, Cardinals one take is they're hapless. This is not whether it's from a talent perspective, which we've discussed a lot, obviously, on the show, from a coaching perspective, or just like like they they targeted Greg Dorch nine times in this game. He was a focal point of the offense. And and now some of that was like check downs, last second things, but Dorch just played 34 career snaps. You just traded a first-round pick for Hollywood Brown. Maybe, like, scheme up some shit to get the ball in Hollywood's hands because you didn't have a lot of other weapons on the outside that you wanted to feature. And they really didn't. Um, and then don't blitz Mahomes. <laughs> 24 is 41 dropbacks. Literally, the book is there's a book on how to defend the Chiefs. There's a tried-and-true blueprint that has kind of kind of had slowed the Chiefs offense down to a degree last year. Last year was probably the the worst we've ever seen 
of Patrick Mahomes led Chiefs offense look in terms of consistency, in terms of dominance. Like they they got stifled at times last year. And it was because of that blueprint. The blueprint is not blitz him on 24 or 41 dropbacks. The blueprints don't blitz, actually. <laughs> and lo and behold, of those 24 dropbacks, he goes 16 to 23 for 143 yards and five touchdowns. Yep, that was uh Cardinals. And, th- and then I had to crack up at this after the game. After the game, Cliff Kingsbury, quote, Cardinals need better practice habits. Buddy, you're the coach. <laughs> you dictate the practices. You're running them. Does he know this? I'm not sure. The uh, Modern Warfare 2 beta drops this week. Do you oh, think Kyler Murray was toast. maybe looking ahead? Dude, they're fucking toast. You know? Put a fork in them. Maybe more concerned about He's, that than the Chiefs. Yeah. Possible. <laughs> it is. No. Um, like, they, they just don't – again, go back to kind of like what I said about the Patriots. You just look at this team, there's just not a lot to get excited about talent-wise. And once DeAndre Hopkins comes back, that that's sure. You can get excited about that. And I think the offense get on back on track a little bit. But I don't see this defense getting solved, man. Don't don't got the horses. Just don't got the horses rolling through there. All right. Next up, Packers, Vikings. Vikings win 23 to 7. Not a particularly close game, despite the final score being 16, despite the Packers kind of being in it at the end. But it wasn't close because in the Vikings here cover as one-and-a-half-point dogs, under hits at 46-and-a-half. Not close because the Packers just weren't moving the ball. Packers had three gains. Or, excuse me. They had – let's get to the Vikings first. I'll get to the Packers next. I have a few things planned for the Packers. I'm flustered here, obviously, as a Packers fan, trying to discuss that shit show that I saw um, yesterday offensively. But let's get to the Vikings. And the one take is just Justin Jefferson – at the kind of the perfect confluence of everyone and their mother being high on his prospects this year on, you know, Kevin O'Connell coming, giving them the Cooper cup role in the offense. What's it, like target share. This guy's going to lead the league. All looked, all looked there. True. Shit. He almost had another touchdown that if he would have gotten another foot in would have been even a bigger blowout in this game. But yeah, Justin Jefferson, also, probably from the back perspective, probably should have guarded him. But, yeah, Justin Jefferson, as advertised. Another just one of those where everyone was hiring him correctly heading into this season. On the flip side of the ball, Packers, one take. Not having guys like Justin Jefferson makes things tough. Makes offense difficult. Um, makes getting explosive plays difficult. And, and now they would have had one explosive play had Tr- Christian Watson not – let the ball slip through his fingers on a go route against Patrick Peterson. But it's also like, you know, kind of the everyone's asking for the sort of antidote for that to the, to solve this problem by featuring your running backs. Cause you have two good running backs. Let's feature them. And they played well in this game is the thing like AJ Dillon and Aaron Jones. You could not ask for better games from them for the opportunities they were given. But on 11 targets and 15 runs between them, so 26 total plays that they were the focal point of, two resulted in gains of 15-plus yards. That's the thing, is that if you are going to go into heavy, let's feature the running backs, let's get them, let's make them focal points in the passing game, running game, and, and they were to a degree in this game, even still, you are limiting yourself in terms of explosive plays. 
those guys resulted in only two 15-plus yard plays. They only had the longest play all game for the Packers on offense was 25 yards. I think Justin Jefferson had like four plays that long. Um, and that's, that's the difference. That is what you're missing when Devontae Adams is not in the game. Your big plays in the offense, the guys who made them last year are gone. Whether it was MVS, whether it was Devontae Adams. Who's going to make them this year? I don't know. And it looks like 2015 Aaron Rodgers when that when you don't have that guy who can make that play. Christian Watson drop was probably the worst thing that could have fucking happened that game. Because Aaron Rodgers immediately stopped even attempting to throw his way. That's as bad of a drop as you'll see. It was. It was brutal. That was like that's uh, a, it's it's all, it was almost comedic because you know, we kind of like it's what I said literally the entire draft press. I'm like, dude's got speed. He is a hell of a deep threat. Will he catch half of his deep catches? TBD, you know, that was the thing. That was the knock. And he said after the game, he's like, yeah, you know, I expect to make that play 100 times out of 100, but it's like, dude, the tape said otherwise. So uh, I do think he will, you know, it's a problem. The trust problem will get fixed at some point during the season for the Packers. And I don't think they're in too bad of a way considering, again, if they're in the AFC, I'd, I'd be worried. They're in the NFC, though. Much easier go of it. And the defense is still... You know, outside of busted coverages, the defense was good in this game. So, not too worried about that side of the ball. So, Packers are fine, but that was kind of a stinker. On to the Giants-Titans, who we'll get to the Titans in a second. Start with the Giants, 21-20 to 20 victory, cover as five-point dogs, under hits, 44 in that game. Big, the one take for the Giants is this is a new coaching era, and it's fucking great to see. Brian Dable. Chirp is starting quarterback, Daniel Jones, not letting the shit fly that Daniel Jones has been doing. You want to cue that up now or you want to say yeah, that? Yeah, rip, rip that. Play that. That was that, that one was great. All right. Let's, let's see that. Let's run it. Always talking, always teaching, always coaching. Over to his quarterback, say, what'd you see? What happened there? Saw him trying to back shoulder. He said he was to read his lips and back shoulder. I think Brian Dable. I don't think his lips said back shoulder. I think they said some curse words, actually. I think they said you can't make that fucking throw numerous times because you can't. It was an awful throw in the end zone. Um, and DJ bounced back. Shit. DJ played well. Um, kind of down the stretch there in that game. The interesting things here, and then going for two after the score to go ahead with a minute left in the fourth. And now <laughs> – Analytics might say going for two in that situation actually probably not the right thing to do because so much time left that it puts the urgency on the Titans who then got into good field goal range and just the kicker missed. Whereas if they don't go for two there, the Titans don't have the same urgency, don't have to get down the football field, maybe just kind of pack it in if things don't go their way to start um, and don't take as many chances and you play for overtime. But worked out. Um, a couple other like ancillary takeaways here. Squan looks back. He, he looked Better week one than literally any point last season. Always a good thing. Um, and Kadarius Tony, they just don't trust him to run routes. I, I know he barely got snaps, and when he did touch the ball, he looked sick. And he is electric with the ball in his hands. But I'm guessing he just – and it goes back to what we said coming out of Florida. He just ran option routes in that Florida offense. They, they didn't trust – They didn't. Florida didn't even trust him to run, like, timing-based routes where he has to be at a spot at a certain time. And it looks like that's what the Giants feel like as well because – Seven snaps in the day. And 
even though every time I touched the ball, it was nice, but they're just not. And those snaps were, I think it was like two crossers, two shallow crossers and a, like a, a flat route. Really did not even give him any looks in that game. So interesting to see how that will play out going forward. Flip side of the ball, though, Titans, here's my one take. Titans are the AFC Packers. They are the Packers of the AFC right now. With mm, with the worst QB and, and no real help coming from the offensive line. Because they are just trying to pound the run game with no explosive weapons in the pass game at the moment. And it's going to look like an offense that's got to be futile. It's going to have its lulls on a week-to-week basis. And they have great defense. Not worried about the defense. But 20 points against Giants, it really ain't going to cut it. Um, Derrick Henry, team's just going to load the box. 10 of his 21 carries came against eight-man boxes. And to kind of highlight, you know, Brian Dable, his play calling and kind of like the change culture in New York. Only two of Squan Barkley's rushes came, two of Squan's 18 rushes came against eight-man boxes. They're giving him space, give him spread to run, letting him work, whereas teams are not going to give Derrick Henry any space to work this season. They're going to say, beat us through the air. Don't let Derrick Henry beat you. Last game of the weekend, Sunday Night Football, Bucks, Cowboys, trouncing, Cowboys, Offense, fuck, awful. 19 to 3, the Bucks win. Under hits there. Bucks covered the two and a half point spread. Here's my one take on the Bucks. This is the best defense in the NFL, I think. Ooh, at full strength, this is the best defense in the NFL. I, I, there's, no, there's no weak link. And now the Bills don't have too many weaknesses either, but I think their linebackers are a point that you can attack on that defense. Whereas the Bucs, I, I, I don't think there is. And the other scary thing about the Bucs is they're running more too high this year. They ran too high and over 60% of the snaps through the first three quarters that really just stifled the Cowboys. They're begging teams to run at Akeem Hicks, at Vita Vea, and putting more resources in the secondary, which we ranked the number two secondary in the NFL heading into the season. Shit, we ranked them like five D-line, seven linebackers, two secondary. Like this... Saying this is the best defense in the NFL, I don't think it's even a hot take, but that was an ass-whooping. Very impressive shit from the Bucks D. On the other side, Cowboys, the one takes poor one out. It's over. That's it. Maybe you sneak into a wild card. But Dak Prescott out six to eight weeks. That's it. Um, you're not winning too many games, Cooper Rush. I, I still like their defense. I, I think Mike Parsons is fucking incredible to watch on a play-for-play basis, what he's capable of. But here's schedule coming up. Six to eight weeks. You beating the Bengals next week without Dak? No. Maybe. Steelers, nah, don't even Steelers just beat the Bengals with essentially a backup quarterback. I'm going to go on a limb and say no. I'll just say that. Um, you beating the Giants on the road? Possibly. Commanders at home? Possibly. But then at the Rams? Doubtful. At the Eagles? Doubtful. Home against the Lions, possibly. Home against the Bears, possibly. At the Packers, doubtful. Now, they do have an easy schedule, but then it kind of cranks, it cranks up then once Dak gets back. So he better come back and not look like Russell Wilson did when he came back from his thumb injury, if you're expecting to make the playoffs. So all those Eagles division winner tickets feeling pretty fucking good right now. Those are, those are looking a lot better than they were two days ago than they were eight months ago 
shit you might as well you might be able to cash them right now if you haven't heard by now underdog fantasy is the best and easiest place to play fantasy football this summer we've all been there in fantasy football leagues it's sunday morning and you're digging through news reports trying to figure out whether to start your stud wide receiver that tweaked his hammy or you have a player on your team that hasn't been getting in the end zone and then one week he suddenly goes off for 30 points on your bench with underdog fantasy all the stress of who to start each week is lifted off your shoulders because it's best ball format draft your teams before the season starts and get the best score in your lineup each week right now you can draft an underdogs best ball mania three tournament to take your shot at 10 million dollars in total prizes plus underdog is going to double your first deposit up to hundred dollars when you sign up with the promo code pff that's right hundred dollars in free money also, if you play 10 of those 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So basically, you're paying less than what you would pay at PFF.com. And it's a little, little cheat code there for you. Underdog drafts close before NFL kickoff. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft in your best ball mania team today. Get ready for the NFL Week 1 action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. And now, everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. Get up seven, you win. Bet on any NFL team of your choice, and if your team leads by seven points at any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's PFF, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for terms and resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee red line at 1-800-889-9789. In New York, call 877-8-HOPANY or text HOPANY 467-369, one per customer. Minimum $5 positive wager, $200 issued as $825 free bets. All right, that was your weekend slate. Monday Night Football to be determined here tonight. Seahawks and the Broncos. That'll be fun to watch. And you know what else is fun to watch? This upcoming segment. We had a not fun to watch too that we'll get to because there were some things this weekend that were not fun to watch. But the first one I want to talk about is the good man who is playing on Monday night tonight. Russell Wilson. Quinn, play the, play the clip of it. If you listen on the podcast, you're not going to be able to see this. I'll describe it to you afterwards, but Quinn, play this. It is Russell Wilson coming out for practice, practicing high fives out the tunnel. Mitch, Mitchell Schwartz had the best take on this, on Russell Wilson. He said he's a method actor playing quarterback. And it's, so, it's such a good description. It's not the first time he's done that, too. Yeah. Like the, yeah, I guess it was last year when he was hurt. Well, he, he was do doing like the no huddle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but that's what I'm saying. He's done this shit in the past. So like I but saw that like, and I was like, yeah, that's what Russell Wilson That's does. like fake like, it didn't on the football me. field stuff. This is fake handshakes to fans while you're running out a door of your practice facility is weird as fuck. It it's, is weird. But like, are you surprised? That's no, what I'm getting. No, I'm not like, surprised. We've seen him do shit like this for a long time now. He is the cringiest quarterback in the NFL. That's not up for debate. He is. But it, and it's and Schwartz like hits the nail on the heads because it's all an act. Like it, it is he's cosplaying as NFL QB. 
And he like, at some point he decided that's what I'm going to be. He's like, there was like a point whether it was like after he transferred from NC state to Wisconsin, probably where he did some soul searching is like, I'm going to act like, I don't know, Peyton Manning or something. He picked someone out, developed his whole personality and life around it. And it's why it feels so weird because he's not, but it's working out for him. <laughs> it's, it, 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 if you ingrain yourself deep enough, you will become that to a degree, but he's still not pulling it off. No one's still buying it because that was fucking incredible. Incredible to watch. Um, yeah, not just fun. Incredible to watch. This one's great, too. This one, I saw this one, and I was dying laughing Sunday. So apparently at the Dolphins-Pats game, someone left a grill on by a, ve a vehicle there's a video saying someone left a grill on by a vehicle, and there's like four cars like blown up in the parking lot. Here, lit I, on fire. I, I, I got, got it queued up. Let's okay. do it. Check, check the picture out if you're watching on YouTube. And That's I mean, it's a scene. There, there are cars just demolished. And Bleacher Report media requests replies to the video saying, "Love this video." Could we please get your permission to repost on our platforms with credit to you? Just some intern saying, love this video to four people's cars being blown up in a parking lot. Love it. Great video. It's the, uh, <laughs> the Mayhem Allstate commercial. Like, that's exactly yeah. what oh, that it was, yes. where the grill that stays on it. But th that was more, like, they made that seem tame in the commercial. That looked like a legit bomb went off, which kind of... Yeah, I mean, I mean probably is what lights a car on fire and then the... Gas tank explodes and it gets another one going, and you got a chain reaction. Um, but yeah, I, great I'm video sure. though. Yeah, I love it. Loved it. Love people's days being just absolutely ruined. Um, next one though, not fun to watch. We had some not fun to watch. I, I had a, a lot that was not fun to watch this weekend, but this may have been the least fun to watch of all of it. The Le'Veon Bell Adrian Peterson boxing match. That one sucked, right? Like that, Aaron Pearson getting just clocked, knocked out. Two guys with like zero boxing form whatsoever. And it's like, because you, you know, they're not, they don't actually have ambitions of being pro boxers. Maybe Le'Veon Bell does, because he's, Kind of that unique. Yeah. He's, uh, he's going to go he's further. A unique but yeah, person. He's a unique dude. But th this is a money grab because they're still like kind of in the limelight and they're still trying to capitalize on it because Adrian Peterson does have a lot of kids. A lot of the mouse. saddest part of it was I saw a tweet and I probably should have pulled it up. I probably should have had it ready, but I think the venue held like 20,000. And I saw a tweet that said they sold like 200 tickets, which yeah, kind of doesn't surprise me. Like no one's really going to truly go to that, but like, that's, yeah. that's a tough look. I don't want to watch that. That's, I don't want to watch Adrian Pearson take more shots. The dude played like 15 years in the league. Yikes. That was just sad. And it's not like J.R. Smith playing golf where it's like, Oh, that's like whimsical and fun. This is tragic and not what I want to be seeing. Wish I'd never even heard of that boxing match, to be honest. Last one on the not fun to watch. 
which actually is kind of very fun to watch. Texas A&M getting upset by App State, and then it leaks their 12th man video from over the weekend. Just play it. I don't have it. You don't they have keep, it? No, because they keep, taking, they keep it taking it down. Every time I keep seeing a link, it's gone. Oh, so no. it actually kind of works out in our favor because Texas A&M appears they to keep... know that like this is not great. Oh, and my they're, God. Okay. Like, the tweet that you sent me, the mm-hmm. account, they straight up suspended the account. Yeah, there's been like four. So Texas A&M is coming. There's coming four, been serious. like four videos taken down of Texas A&M's, um, what is it, that 12th man whatever the fuck it is. One of the weirdest shit. Like they had a cringy video get released last year where the guy, I'm sure you've seen it, but in this one, he decries Appalachian state with just awful joke after all. Like, I'm not sure they were even joke attempts. They were said with like punchline feel to it. Like his timing was as if he was telling jokes. God, I fucking wish we had the video. It was so cringy. Yeah. It was so look, bad. Look it up. Go try to find it. Yeah, but look it, it up on Twitter, but be careful. Yeah, like Which I said, do tells your own you risk. how embarrassed Sex A&M is right now. Yeah, and good how thing we didn't play because they, they would have uh, yeah, might have our podcast. We, we might have gotten uh, cease and desist in the mail, but it was so bad. It was, I don't, I don't, I cannot describe it. Like the cringe, it was the, one of the cringiest things I've ever seen in my entire life. If not the creatures, it was just, it was awful. And like the fans were loving it. There's like, there's like clips where they turn and pan to the fans and people are actually laughing. Oh my God. It hurt. It was difficult to watch. Um, not fun to watch. Difficult to watch. All right. Mailbag. Mailbag time. A few questions for you guys here on the mailbag. First up, Cole Thune on Twitter. I think PFF has an excellent track record of draft evaluation. Potentially better than most NFL teams. Did I write this question? I don't even know if that's true, but thank you. Uh, when it comes to draft eval misses that you have had, how many misses would you chalk up to off-field? Work ethic, mental, personal issues, so on. That seems to be the biggest gap between NFL and at-home scouting is the private workouts and interviews. Do you feel most of your misses are because of being able to identify off-field red flags? Uh, or is there something else that you would be consider being the most common reason for missed evaluations? See, that's the thing. It's like, I was going back and I did a little like research just to try to find it. And it's so tough to know those things, you know, teams don't publicize very frequently. Hey, Hey, this guy didn't put in the work, you know, like so infrequently we, we don't hear, we really only hear the really egregious Isaiah Wilson cases where it's like, okay, yeah, the guy isn't even showing up to the facility sort of stuff. But when a guy is just not motivated to, really play football and when he doesn't really love the game, those stories don't come out. So it's difficult to say. And it's why I try not to read too much into singular misses, you know, being high on one guy and him not panning out or vice versa. I tend to put more stock in multiple guys of the same vein that you miss on and whether it's, you know, a trait or something that they share because Sometimes it is as simple as like the guy had all the talent in the world, but just didn't really care to apply himself. Um, or so, so like there's not a lot of, t- but again, a lot of times, unless it's Jamarcus Russell's of the world, you don't hear about that. So I guess that's a really non-answer, but it's just something that you're going to deal with even as NFL teams, because yeah, they probably talk to a degree about why they missed, but you're not going to know the story behind why everyone uh, didn't turn out in the NFL. All right, Spencer Davidson on Twitter asked this. Was Anthony Richardson overhyped, or is it simply a matter of inexperience? 
He looks amazing on the move, but it seems he can throw one pass, any other, a fucking missile being that one pass, and that's actually accurate. I, that is one thing I noticed this past weekend that I was like, dude, he's got to change it up a little bit. <laughs> he's got he's got to learn a little. He's got the, you know, Mariana, Ryan Mallett. I was gonna say I was he gonna say Mariano Rivera. Like the Mariano Rivera is the world that can only that only throw one pitch or rare. You got to have yeah something more than a Ryan Mallet, which is just the fastball. And so I am a little worried about that. Uh, any other thoughts from UK Florida game? I don't think he was being overhyped, truthfully, because I don't. At least personally, I didn't see anyone ranking him as like alongside Bryce Young and Cedar Stroud. No one was putting him in that conversation. Everyone was saying he could be. And, and there's not, not a lot of guys that can be, you know. Like, there's not a lot of guys that are that gifted that can get up into that mix of the quarterback position. So I think that's what everyone said. He was six, second on the PFF draft board heading into the season, 22nd on Dame Brugler's. Like, people recognize the talent, know that he can be good, but also recognize there's 77 career dropbacks before this year. And it was always a red flag that he wasn't starting over Emory Jones, you know. So... Still an unknown. I mean, bad game against Kentucky. Bad, bad game. Uh, truthfully, he's probably would not surprise me if he doesn't even declare this year. If it's like one more year of football, just because going back to the Trey Lance conversation, playing a lot of football helps you play better football. You know, when you only have a year of starting under your belt, guys get ang- guys get nervous about drafting that and, and what it's going to look like at the NFL because one year of college doesn't bury the NFL at all, but multiple years of college seeing multiple different schemes you can get a little closer to the ballpark and feel a little more comfortable once you get to the league so would not surprise me whatsoever all right fat joe charles on twitter asked this after watching the bears play one of the most lackluster first halves ever they got really lucky in the second half with the 49ers committing penalties um i don't know if i'd call that luck but they played a better second half but what prospects do you think they could add to help justin fields actually have a chance in his first contract now I think they got to go free agency quickly. They they need someone reliable. And by free agency, I don't mean Byron Pringle and Equinemius St. Brown. Or Equinemius St. Brown, as uh, Daryl Johnson was saying on the broadcast, I think, multiple times. But if you are going to go draft, you are going to go receiver, again, it comes back to I want speed. So if Jackson Smith – like, I'm not going Jackson Smith and Jigba. I, I want someone who can really strike fear in defenses. I want Justin Fields with – three guys running low four fours or better. I want a track team. That's how you build around just fields, in my opinion. So I would love Quentin Johnson, TC wide receiver. He's like six four, probably gonna run low four fours, if not even better than that. He was on Bruce Feldman's freaks list, eleven foot broad jump. The guy's explosive as can be. So that's someone I would love. Um but yeah, just speed. Get some speed in the fold there if you are the Chicago Bears. I was trying to the Valus Jones. Keep going. Not enough. Can't get enough speed in that offense. All right. Samsky on Twitter. Love the Pod Daily Show with Trevor. I have a question about Lamar's contract sitch. With him currently still playing as a rookie deal, which is insane in my opinion, do you think this will impact his playing style this year? This week we only saw him rush six times, but at the same time they were playing the Jets too. Six times is a good amount. I mean, six times isn't like him taking the foot off the gas pedal by any means. And honestly, most of his runs in the past have been design runs. He's not a massive scrambler of the football like some other quarterbacks around the league so I, I don't think you know I don't think Greg Roman's gonna just stop calling design runs it's a massive part of the offense that's why the Ravens that's the Ravens identity is him as a rushing threat and opening up space in that regard 
but it's impossible not to factor in, right? From a human perspective, human element, that has to weigh on him. It gets talked about every single week. There's a new report about how much guaranteed money he turned down. And if it really is, you know, 130 million, if that was true, that's stressful. I, I cannot imagine the stress it is to turn down $130 million, which is generational, life-changing, never have to work again in your life, never have to do anything again in your life, can't tell me shit money, to then one play that goes away. And now he still has made a lot of money and still, um, with the fifth-year option guaranteed, isn't going to be hurting for cash. But that's a different animal. So, right, it has to play a factor. Um, like if you're like lower shoulder to get this extra yard or take a knee and slide, not take a knee, slide. I think he's probably going to slide more this year. Like uh, they're just can't not, can't help it. It's human. So I, I don't think it's going to be that big of an impact though in this game. And it did not matter against the Jets. So, all right, there you have it. There's your mailbag. Brief little first round lock segment. We're going to touch on draft a little more on Thursday. I might even move the first round lock segment to Thursday from now on, just because we do touch draft more on that uh, episode. Will Anderson was first first round lock. This week we're going Jalen Carter, Georgia defensive tackle. Three pressures on 15 pass rushing snaps against Samford this week. I've seen a banner tape to watch, but highest graded player in Georgia's D line last year that featured a couple other first rounders. So. Jalen Carter, your first round lock, number two, behind Will Anderson. Might get some quarterbacks here earlier this year than we did last year, but that's it. All right, finish up with this before we get to the Eric Alco interview, and it's the football adjacent power rankings. And Quinn, I'm going to need your takes on this because we're ranking the best NFL time slots to tailgate. At number five, 4 p.m. slots the worst to tailgate, in my opinion. I wholeheartedly disagree. Oh no! I'll let you go though. Like keep four p.m. is great for a college going. tailgate. Four p.m. is bad for an NFL tailgate because you miss every game. You are at a tailgate and the whole one p.m. slate is passing you by. Well, maybe in the past, but like I mean, I can watch it on YouTube TV on my phone. Can't or stream within go, can't stream within twenty feet of a stadium or something. Whatever the fucking well, Sunday ticket was telling just me yesterday. Move. I know. Well, you know, but like you, you'll always see people at tailgates that have like a set actual tailgate yeah. down and they have like, you know, the TV, a 40 inch TV on the, on the bed of the truck and I, you can watch that. I like guess if you, can you get got something zone. like that, that's cool. Yeah. And I just like it because a, like you can watch the game. If you mm -hmm. put effort into it or if you go somewhere, that like is you true. can watch the games and you're just not rushed, right? Like you don't have to get up early. You can get up, take time, get your shit together that mm -hmm. day. You don't have to get it together it's the fair. night before and get down there at your own pace and then still have a good time. And it, it's still not, it's not like some of these other mm -hmm. slots where it's like, Oh shit, it's 1am when I get home. Yeah. See, I'm it's a morning just, person though. So I, yeah. I can, I can get up early and do that. That ain't no problem to me. So my next one, Sunday night football for similar reasons, you're missing a four o'clock slate. It's a Sunday night. So either you're taking Monday off or it's going to be a tough one for you. Um, the next day but it is a primetime game so does beat out 4 p.m in that regard monday night football is third for me obviously the same probably have to work the next day um but maybe not necessarily as strenuous as a monday probably would be and then you're not missing any other football 
Number two is the 1 p.m. slate because you're not missing any football at all. You, you are up early, and I love the energy of a 9 a.m., 10 a.m. tailgate. It's just, your standard it's issue tailgate. Yeah. Which is great. It, just the energy of drinking at a time when no one else reasonably in the world should be drinking. You know, like it, it feels almost feels almost wrong, but it's so right to be doing because you're amongst because everyone else is doing it too. That sounded very like peer pressure. Like I will I say, the bridge, you're you know? like a one p.m. tailgate. Your um, your food spread is more open. Yeah, food right? spread. If you wanted to do like breakfast or brunch, I mean, I guess if you really wanted to do like breakfast for dinner, like at a late tailgate, you could. But like. Weird. That's that would be different as opposed to like mm-hmm. 1 p.m. I can have burgers and dogs or I could crack an egg and do a breakfast burger. I like both. shit like that. You know, yeah. I love both, too. So and then the best one's Thursday night because Friday's very easy to roll in hungover on a Friday. You should not take off. Yeah. For Thursday night. But right? you don't even need to. You don't need to. Yeah. I, I will say this, though. Uh I went to MLT after the game yesterday, mm-hmm. and uh, I was there with a couple friends of mine. One of my buddies, big brain move. I can't believe that I didn't think it is, and I told him I'd shout it out on the pod today. He took off today. He yeah. took off the Monday after did. the first NFL slate. I was like, dude, that's a – I requested off. That's Obviously, big. didn't get honored um, here at PFF. But MLTs, did Zach Taylor come bring a game ball? Mm. Too soon? No, too Sorry. soon, yeah. Bad joke, bad joke. All right. That's it for your football Jason Power Rankings. Best NFL time slots to tailgate. Let's now get to the interview with Shrine Bowl director, Eric I am joined now by Shrine Bowl director, Eric Galco. And Eric, I want to talk about the Shrine Bowl 1000 that just recently came out uh, a couple weeks ago. Because I'm looking at the website and it says there's only 998 entries on it. Actually. <laughs> Did you come up too short on the Shrine Bowl 1000? I love it. Right out of the gate. Um, there were two players that uh, are not immediately eligible for the Shrine Bowl. Um, they graduate in the fall, which is kind of that weird all-star game rule so they were taken off so thank you mike for catching that i thought no one would catch it but of course you did because you're you're that thorough mike so i just wanted to make sure you're not bringing you know fake news (laughs) to the table here how how much effort went into this triangle 1000 though because i don't even think i can name a thousand college football players right now how long did that take to put together a list like that it took a long time and and our staff had started working on the 2023 draft about January of 2022, right? Right after the Shrine Bowl roster kind of been set. And it was a lot more labor intensive than I had thought to really actually have a thousand players, or as you eloquently pointed out, 998 players. Um, because A, we learned that there's a lot of really talented, unique background type players in college football. Um, and it came down to kind of figuring out like, all right, who's got the background teams like? What small school guys can we kind of round up on small school players so NFL teams can look at that? And it's honestly been a great way for us to promote players. But also my discussions with NFL personnel, like it's it's almost like a, a way to have an extra watch list for them as well, too. So it's been multifaceted. So it was a lot of effort. Um, but I think it serves for us as like a good guide path. And now we're at a thousand players to look out for the Shrine Bowl this year so. You mentioned the two guys taken off the list, not being eligible. How, how exactly, what's the, exactly the eligibility process yeah. for, you know, those postseason, a postseason bowl like that showcase? Yeah. And like, um, why, why did so, those come about in the first place? Why, why do they have yeah. those rules? It's a great question. So, I mean, first off, COVID has made this a lot more difficult, right? Because everyone's got this bonus here, but they're still seniors. But that kind of aside, uh, the rule is that if you graduate college by the fall semester, 
of the draft process, you are allowed to play in one of the, the main three All-Star games, the Shrine Bowl, the Senior Bowl, the NFL PA Collegiate Bowl. Um, and the reason for that is, is the whole point of not having underclassmen in All-Star games, at least in the NFL and NCAA level, is to not encourage guys to not finish college to play professionally, but it's kind of an incentive that, hey, if you take care of yourself academically, you're not bound by this must be four years out of high school type rule. So it kind of incentivizes that. Um, and, and there'll be a couple guys. Well, there was four guys last year at the Shrine Bowl that did that, I think. And, and there'll be even more this year as well, too. So it kind of incentivizes guys to graduate. But that's kind of the rule. It's only for those main three all-star games. Do you think we'll see someone at some point in time say, hey, it's the way of the world. You know, NCAA is crumbling. NIL is such that, like, we're not really incentivizing school anywhere in this sort of collegiate athletic process right. to where, hey, we don't have to be the the moral high ground as a bowl game, we're going to allow juniors in at some point. You think that's going to happen? I hope so. I, I think a big part of it too, Mike, and you know this talking to players like you did all last year, like these players are way smarter than like we were 10 years ago, right? So like they are thinking already of their pro career, right? Even 10, 15 years ago was like, hey, get your degree because make a couple million dollars in the NFL, that'd be great. Now we're talking about, you know, Kyler Murray getting a quarter of a billion dollars, right? So I, I think these players are more prepared for the pro level. And I think it's time at some point for that to happen. As of right now, the NFL kind of has a very hard stance on all-star games and underclassmen. But but I'm with you, Mike. I think at some point here, we all kind of recognize that, hey, this whole college process, NCA, it's about time to kind of put that to bed. Yeah, and it's like, in my opinion, you're, the bowl itself is not incentivizing anyone else any, any more than a rookie you know, million-plus-dollar contract is. You <laughs> right. know, like the fact that you can go to this, this postseason bowl yeah. is not their ultimate goal. It's the money that they can make at the next level. So you're not really giving any more fuel to the fire, in my opinion. One week in Las Vegas is pretty awesome, Mike. I will say that for yeah. the Shrine Bowl. But, yeah. but I think you're right that like NIL, everything else, makes it much more appealing. Like, hey, decide if you're ready to be a – NFL athlete or an Alabama athlete is more important than all-star games for sure. So we'll see. So now this year, you guys have the Shrine Bowl is going to have two NFL coaching staffs. <clears throat> right. Uh, that usually was reserved for the senior bowl. How did that come about? What were the conversations that led to the NFL making that decision? Yeah. Um, it's so it's what, it, and the easy way to put it, right. People know the senior bowl has had those two NFL coaching staffs and we have had the Shrine Bowl the last five years has had, kind of nominated staffs of up and coming young coaches from a hodgepodge of different NFL teams. And we're just switching those. There's nothing new created, just the Shrine Bowls getting those staffs and the, and the Senior Bowls getting um, the, the kind of young and up and coming coaches. And it really came about because you know, I think in part the Shrine Bowl last year, I'm, I'm proud of how it went event wise. And I think the NFL had seen that things were going well. The, the Shrine Bowl was not at that level, you know, five, six, seven years ago. I think they saw that being in Vegas, the way we did things, NFL Stadium and Allegiant Stadium. I think we saw that that was worthy of being kind of in that you know, heightened level of an all-star game. I think secondarily, the league has kind of said in their memo and, and off as well is that they, they don't mind having competition, but they want to make sure that one all-star game is not being benefited over another. So I think it was a mixture of those two things. And I think there's pros and cons to both type of coaching staffs, but I think certainly having two NFL staffs and having a full NFL team get their chance to work with the player. You know, I always hearken back to talking with people in the Washington, at the time, the Washington Redskins about a decade ago, um, I talked to people on that staff and they said, hey, we work with this quarterback named Kirk Cousins at the Senior Bowl and he was awesome. We are going to draft him and they, you know, they were going to work with him. And then they, you know, drafted Robert Griffin and still took Kirk Cousins because they knew him. They were comfortable with him for a week in practice. So I think two NFL coaching staffs is a huge help for players, especially quarterbacks, but really all players. And we're pumped to have it this year. All right. I want to get into your background a little bit yeah. because I think I first ended up meeting you already when you were the Shrine Bowl director. 
but you've been around. I think I followed you on Twitter ever since, you know, early 2010s when you were doing optimum scouting. How did you break into the industry of football and why did you like fall in love with the game and decide I want to have a career in football in the first place? Yeah, really, you know, I, I started working in football almost you know, shortly after I started really falling in love with football. What I mean by that is I saw from a business standpoint that, hey, People are, you know, agents and CFL teams at the time and arena league teams when they were kind of in vogue in the early 2010s really didn't have somebody as an outside consultant helping them scout. Um, and I saw it really from a business opportunity to say, hey, you know what? I like football. I'm pretty good at Madden back in my younger days. Let me see if I can learn how to scout real quick. And thankfully I had some mentors like Ted Sunquist and people in the industry that I spoke with and, and kind of learned how to scout on the fly. But I really started out working in a business. And in the early, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, I was consulting for agents and CFL teams and arena league teams, and then got into media a bit more when, when Twitter was, was kind of being beefed up a little bit. And then from social media kind of ebbed back and forth between working at, uh, did some work for ESPN, Bleacher Report, uh, Sporting News for a while there as well, and then back to consulting back and forth. And then most recently took over as the director of player personnel for the XFL, and led that in the startup world until bankruptcy, you know, RIP, that version of the XFL, and now the Shrine Bowl. So I've always looked at this from a, hey, how can I add value to people and how can I work in this space? And I've been consulting and working in the media for, you know, over a decade now, going on two decades here pretty soon because I saw the opportunity. So I, the best part of my day is watching football. I have a lot of other stuff going on nowadays with event planning and such too, but I wake up every morning at 7 a.m. and get to watch film a little bit because it's, it's why I do this. That's the best part about the job. What was like the moment where you're like, hey, I kind of made it in the industry? Because obviously the way you started out, you said you were kind of grinding from job yeah. to job. When were you kind of like, oh, shit, this is actually for real? Yeah, I mean, I, I thankfully I've been consulting and working full time for a while. But I would say uh, when I got a chance to work with and talk with Oliver Luck at the XFL and Sam Schwartzstein, who brought me on, because that was kind of the first moment that my agent relationships, my scouting background, my understanding of the business intuitively like they appreciated that in the moment. And they said, hey, you're the perfect guy for this job. You know, it really was a great opportunity because they weren't looking for, you know, a 20 year NFL GM to be their director of player personnel. They wanted something different. And between having a law background, scouting, consulting for agents, doing the media stuff, I kind of had the perfect mix of experiences. Plus, I didn't have to explain myself. They saw the resume. They knew what I had done. I kind of felt like, OK, I, I can walk in and do this job. And that was a hell of a job. It was exhausting, but it was rewarding. And I think since then, I feel I've had more opportunities open up and I'm kind of at that stage now where I can kind of look to see where I want to work. And I'm very thankful to be at the Shrine Bowl because, you know, for the hundred years now, the Shrine Bowl has been, and most of that time, the number one all-star game, make a chance to bring that back and, and be competitive and build something. But I would say, you know, 2018, that XFL hiring made me feel like, you know what, everything I've done in the past has been worth it. So you're the director of player personnel for the XFL. What did that like all yeah. entail as your day-to-day -day job? What were you actually, you know, doing? Everything, man. It, it was, you know, I was employee probably four or five on the football side. Um, so that was, you know, assistant director of social media, assistant director of PR, assistant director of event operations, right? So we were all kind of all hands on deck, which was great. I learned a lot of stuff doing that as well. But I think the real fun part for me and the real pressure staking part was kind of the strategic planning with a real purpose behind it, right? So for example, when I got the job about a month after starting, I had started talking with Marty Maggot, who was the agent for PJ Walker, right? He was one of the first guys I wanted for the Shrine Bowl back in mid 2018. And I would talk to Marty and another agent named Harold Lewis, who had represented a bunch of players. 
every week or so being like, hey, if PJ's ever interested, come on over. And it was that like two years of work that two years after I started talking with him, PJ Walker signed at the XFL in August of, 20, of 2019. And I think it, it was really exciting because we're doing a lot of other event stuff, but I knew what mattered, quarterbacks, offensive line play, being organized, et cetera. And a lot of my job was doing the day-to-day event planning stuff, but also making sure that, hey, if the talent on the field sucked, it was going to fall on me. And I had to do every little thing and plan for that week one uh, in February of 2020 for two and a half years. So it was a mix of like working my butt up every day, but also like knowing I am the prize and doing a two year plan and actually executing it was was a lot of my job. Man, you talking about that really brings me back to like early days at PFF because we were yeah. obviously kind of a small company trying to just make it in the first place. And there were days where like we had like just a group of like five people who just ran the Twitter account who like, if you just came up with a tweet, like you go and tweet it off the, off the main PFF Twitter account. They were just like, that was kind of just how it was ran back then. So it really yeah. takes me back. Cause that's like a lot of, you know, sports industry. You would think there are these very, you know, well-run companies. No, sometimes it's just like guys trying to get by in their day. And it was, it was, I'm sure you put this, it was exhausting, but I feel yeah. like I've learned so much by doing stuff out of my comfort zone. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you were a social media expert before then, but I certainly wasn't before then. And I kind of still not pseudo became one. I know how graphics work. I know how mm-hmm. all this stuff works now and no idea I would do that when I first started. Yeah. There was a time where I made graphics for a local TV station here. <laughs> because yeah. we had a deal with them to get make graphics. And that was me making graphics. I don't know what the hell I'm doing making graphics, but I made graphics. So uh, yeah. very interesting. What do you think of the new XFL reboot? I, 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 don't, I don't think you're going to be involved in it. I haven't heard anything about yeah. that. But like, are you, do you think they can make it? Because the OG one was like, that was probably the most successful of any of the minor leagues, obviously to date um, yeah. in terms of like fan interest for my money. But do you think yeah. the new XFL can re, you know, kind of pick up where you guys left off? Yeah, first off, it was it was very sad when the XFL ended because of COVID, right? And that was the only reason yeah. it was because not only was the football, I think, good. I know I'm biased, but TV ratings were up, stadium attendance was up, Twitter engagement. We had the, like the largest, I think we were like the fifth or sixth largest league Twitter account in any sport in America. Like crazy amount of social media, digital media interest, um, and it was too bad to see that. I think they're they're in a bit of a different landscape, right? When we were around. Uh, the short-lived AAF had just folded, mm-hmm. so we had really no competition in American football. Um, I think the new XFL has a lot of the same leadership we did last time. Doug Whaley back involved, my good friend. I talked with him just last week, and I'm still trying to help out where I can because I still feel tied to that XFL name. But I think they'll be in, you know, for startup football leagues, I know way more than anybody else will care to ever learn. But the two most important things are quarterbacks and offensive line play. And both of those are important because, A, they drive success. And B, they're really scarce, right? Mm-hmm. You know this, Mike. There's not a lot of quarterbacks at any level of football that are really, you know, good and able to kind of make players around them better. So for the XFL, we had about, I think we had no competition. I think we had probably 12 to 14, you know, good XFL quarterbacks, starters and backups. Now with the USFL around and this fan control football league and the CFL sticking around, it's going to be really tough to find eight good quarterbacks and you know, what's five times eight, 40 good offensive linemen to start week one. It's not going to be easy to find. I know it sounds crazy. You can't find 40 offensive linemen, but, you know, look at NFL rosters and be like, well, who are they going to get? So I think the, the talent will be a huge challenge for my my guy, Doug Whaley and that staff. But I think operationally with, with the rock and Danny Garcia and, you know, Redbird, they have the financial ability, the stadium ability, the creative ability to do cool, cool stuff. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about the quality of talent and finding eight good quarterbacks and 40 offensive linemen stuff to do. I'll tell you one quick story from my days of the XFL. Every week that happened, I would give Oliver Luck and, and Doug Whaley a list of quarterbacks, or I'm sorry, offensive linemen on the street 
who could even play one snap in the XFL. Mm -hmm. And by like week three, it was like four. Like, hey, if we have four more injuries, we're in trouble on the offensive line. That was by week two or three, and that was with no competition. Like, that's what we had. So it's really tough to find offensive linemen and quarterbacks. So I wish them luck, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah, do you think there's ever a, I guess, point in the future where the NFL partners to make, you know, like how, how NFL Europe was a feeder for actual NFL, actual NFL partnership. Do you think that's ever going to be the case? I don't think so. Not for a while because the NFL needs to do that, right? The XFL is going to, the XFL is dying to be that just like the USFL is dying to be that. So let someone else spend the money first. Yeah. So I think the plan and, and my knowledge of those communications before with the XFL and the NFL league office and Vince McMahon and Roger Goodell at the time were that, Sure. If you guys are stable for four or five years, we'll slap our logo with you as well and do that. But the NFL is going to wait to see one of these works. And I think for good reason, right? The UFL is the only spring league that was back in the early 2000s to last more than like a season or two. So we'll see if the XFL or USFL can hang on for a couple of years. And if so, I think the NFL would like it. I actually hope they don't do it, though, because I think it creates a mar open market. Like, hey, P.J. Walker would probably be a practice squad only guy in the NFL if not for the XFL. He ended up starting games last year. So I think there is a need for a little bit, not quite a challenger, but a different option for players. But I think that's the long-term goal for everybody. I do think, though, just from a fan interest perspective, as soon as you say this guy is tied to you know, the Green Bay Packers, whatever, yeah. whatever franchise in the XFL, he's tied to the Green Bay Packers. All of a sudden, I think it changes kind of the dynamic of you immediately get every fan base engaged, or at least the diehards engaged to where, you know, PJ Walker plays great. He's still up for grabs for 32 teams. And so you don't really have that inbuilt like interest in some guy doing well for you is my take. Plus the benefit is that if PJ Walker was tied to the Panthers, the Panthers, you know, maybe don't draft Matt Corral if they know he's coming or something yeah. like that, right? You kind of have a triple A AAA team that you can kind of say, you know what, we're not going to draft that position because that guy's down at the XFL. So there's pros and cons. I think that's probably the best idea. And I think financially for these leagues, I can tell you every league would love to be considered the feeder program for the NFL team. I don't have to go inside information there. Every team would love that financially for sure. Yeah. So you've worked pretty much everywhere in the business at this point. I'm sure people come asking to you for advice on how to get in, what to do. What do you say to people when they come and ask? Yeah. Um, one is try to find ownership at a job, right? So if you're working at a college personnel department, own the transfer portal for your team or own a geographic region, own a meeting room, right? So, Hey, if you get a chance to work in football in any area, try to own something with our shrine bowl staff, for example, our area scouts own a conference and they're the experts. They're going to pick the roster as much as I am in that sense. Cause they own that. And when they talk to a team, one of our guys on our staff last year got hired because he owned a conference. That team talked about players there. Boom. He got hired. So I think number one is ownership and number two, which is really tough and probably unfair, but I think you have to have a good idea of where you want to go in the business early on. Um, if you want to work in media, you got to start developing media skills and many people in the media space. You want to work in the NFL, talk to people in the NFL and develop your NFL scout reports, recruiting, start developing a recruiting base. I think a lot of people just say, give me any job, I'll figure it out later. And unfortunately, it's really hard. Every You know this too, Mike, every NFL team wants to develop within, right? Have a 22-year-old be their GM in 20 years, not hire from the outside too much. So I think in the football space, it's, it's own something and have that your resume that you actually are in charge of one thing. And then secondly, kind of pick your lane as early as you can and and figure out, hey, how do I get this job I want in this particular area as soon as possible? Yeah, I love that. But one of the things I love about you, Eric, is that we're both kind of in the same boat of outsiders. You know, NFL yeah. is very clicky in terms of who it lets in. And a lot of times yeah. that's why they get popped for nepotism. It's why, you know, they get a lot of those criticisms because it is a closed ecosystem for the most part. It's difficult to break in even 
with a ton of experience, it's difficult to get jobs in the league. But I like the way you put it. I usually tell people have something that you can point to that's yours, but saying ownership yep. of something is probably more succinctly how I feel about it, something because it's like a lot of people want to work in football. It's a thing. Like everyone loves the game of football. So I got a whole podcast dedicated to loving <laughs> the game of football. There's a lot of people that listen to it, a lot of people that wish they could but don't have something as soon as you say, oh, well, what do you bring to the table? Well, they have like their resume, but they don't have a scouting report. They don't have something that they can point to that's tangible. That's the thing. I've had people interview, like apply for a job for the Shrine Bowl. And I'm like, can you send me a scouting report? I don't have one. Well, then just, that's the job you're applying for, right? Yeah. If you want to work in college recruiting, then have me a, a you know one line around 100 guys. You want to work in the NFL, have a scouting report. Even if it's not good, give me something to build off of. But you're absolutely right. I think people need to kind of know where they want to go early on and try to own something in it. All right, let's get into player eval a little bit. Yeah. The, the, the nitty-gritty, what we came here for, what we both obviously love about the game of football. Who was the most underdrafted player in the 2022 class, last year's draft? This past I'm going to be biased on Pick a Shrine Bowl guy, oh, just for the record. I'm going to say that on the outset. Um, but I'm going to say, because I was just at uh, Tennessee Titans training camp, Kyle Phillips, um, it's probably a tie between Kyle Phillips of UCLA, the slot receiver, and Chico Congo from Maryland. Um, I will say that, Chico Congo, because Austin Hooper's there, probably be a 2023 guy you'll draft early in your fantasy draft, but he'll play this year. But Kyle Phillips, man, he's a, a slot receiver. He jumped off for us. I forget what game it was, but there was a, a seam vertical route. He caught back shoulder. If you watch Kyle Phillips, I know the play I'm talking about. He was so impressive at UCLA. I think he had so much of, of a little more vertical stretching version of Hunter Renfro coming out of UCLA. And I think his ability to win as a slot receiver with short area routes in college was so impressive. He dominated the East-West Shrine Bowl, one of the best receiver all-star games I've seen. I remember John Brown, actually, ironically, at the Shrine Bowl back in 2010, 2011, dominated. And Kyle Phillips, the same thing. And I go to Titans training camp, and the first thing, he won't mind me sharing this, first thing J-Rob, their GM, said to me is, your boy Kyle looks awesome. I go to practice, two touchdowns in practice. He's basically going to be their starting slot receiver. There'll be a lot of you know, two tight end looks, so he won't start necessarily every practice. But I think him being a fifth round pick, like he's going to be a guy that late rounds and fantasy drafts, he and Tannehill are already making a connection as a fifth round pick. All right, let's talk about this upcoming class. What's a name people need yeah. to hear about more in 2023? That hasn't yeah, got a lot I'll of love, need to talk about more. Uh, yeah, I mean, towards the top of the draft, I think uh, Luke Musgrave of Oregon State, tight end. Um, he's one of, if not the best tight end in the draft. I think he's extremely dynamic. We had his teammate... Uh, also a tight end, Tegan Quinartano, I'm um, at the Shrine Bowl this past year, who's more of the blocking guy. Mm. But Luke Musgrave, I mean, pick your awesome tight end comp. Greg Olson's in there. Um, he can be a receiver. He can be a, an inline tight end. He can block a little bit. But the ability to kind of really impact the game as a tight end, I, there's not going to be a guy who's going to be – I think he's a first-round pick as of right now, Luke Musgrave, Oregon State. I think he's that talented. So he's not quite a sleeper, but I'm not sure people are thinking of him in that way. And his ability to run a complex route tree. He's doing over routes, up and unders, get like hitch and goes as a tight end. He's breaking tackles. He's a really dynamic player that I'm very pumped to see because the Oregon State team's been pretty good this year. Yeah, dude is a heck of an athlete for like, he's like 6'6", yeah. 255, and he's probably yeah. going to go, I mean, mid four fives, I'd say, yeah. just from watching on tape, like he can run. So yeah, yeah, and that's like tight end scouting. And to me, it's so binary. It's like, can you move? If yep. not, like you, I'm not even going to worry about drafting. Like there's, you're just not yep. impacting the NFL game anymore. Like you got to be able to move like a wide receiver to produce like a wide receiver or else yeah. you'd rather have a wide T receiver. Tight end and running back might be like the easiest positions to eval right now for me. Cause it's just like, as a running back, can you pass block? No. Okay. Can't pass catch. Okay. Are you a dynamic athlete? No. 
probably not a role for you in the NFL anymore. And same yeah. for tight end. If you can't block your receiver or your Mike Gesicki, one of the two, I guess he's still a tight end for some reason. But then, you know, are you an elite athlete? Are you an elite blocker? If not one of those two things, we're so matchup heavy now at running back and tight end in the NFL that for Musgrave, it's like a yes, and then it's a special grade. And he's he's he could be that kind of guy. Again, I don't be surprised if he ends up being a guy that people are mocking in the top 20 picks once NFL grades kind of get out there. All right, is this quarterback class upcoming as special as everyone's talking about? Yeah. And I think the reason why, and not just because of the names, right? There's Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Will Levis, and a lot of good quarterbacks after those three. Tanner McKee's a guy I know you like as well. Um, But I think the real exciting part as an evaluator is everyone talks about every year, right? There's a Joe Burrow every year, a Zach Wilson every year, right? We didn't see those guys coming. And in this draft class, there's like 10 guys that could be that. And that's what's so appealing. It's not just the Bryce, the CJ, the Will. But it's guys like uh, DJ from Clemson, Jaron Hall from BYU, like guys that we're not thinking about as top 10, top 20 picks, but have really special tools. Devin Leary of NC State could be this year's Kenny Pickett, right? Three-year starter, same offense. There's so many of those guys that, hey, one or two things go right, and they're a top 20 pick. And with that many players, if we have six first-round picks being quarterbacks, I won't be surprised. I think three are... I hate to say locks because things could change, but I expect Bryce, CJ, and Will to definitely be there. And then there's probably 10, 12 more that could definitely be first-round picks if things go the right way. And I don't mean to say hyperbolically that, and I think I told you, Mike, you know, shortly before last year's draft, that played a role in, I think, I know the quarterbacks falling a year ago, right? There were teams that just said, not we'll take this guy later. Hey, we're out on quarterback. We're okay with our guy. And next year's so loaded that we'll just let Malik Willis fall the third round. We'll let Desmond fall the third round. We'll let Sam Howell go to the fifth round because we're just going to be out on quarterbacks this year and in on 2023. Yeah. Is this so you mentioned that, like, you know, the guys coming out of nowhere? We had three of the last four years. QB1 was, you know, not a top five QB in preseason on anyone's draft board. You know, yep. had Kenny Pickett, Joe Burrow. Kyler Murray, is that a new phenomenon? Is that a fluke? Is it a trend? Or have I just been not scouting long enough to know that that like is just how it goes in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Joe Joe was special. I think Joe is an outlier, right? It's more than are these guys outliers or is this the new norm? I think Kenny kind of showed a lot that how much better a player can get with multiple years in the same offensive system in college, especially for a guy like Kenny, who's as kind of put together as they come and a plus athlete. Um, so I think that's probably a big part of it. I think too, as we have so many, and it, you've seen it too, cause you covered the draft the last, you know, how many years now, like we've had such spoiled receiver classes. There are so many good young receivers in the NFL and all different types. There's the AJ Brown types. There's the Tyree kill and the younger guys types. There's elite slot guys like Kyle Phillips and Hunter Renfro and Cooper cup. There's still the big body guys. Everyone likes as well too, that because these receivers and tight ends are so dynamic and running backs now are dynamic as well as, you know, being inside them, you don't need a special quarterback all the time, right? How many throws in the NFL now are RPO, quick game, easy throws, 60%, 70%, like it is at the college level. So if you have a quarterback who can either move or just always hit those plays and then a few more, you don't need to be a special traits guy, right? Mac Jones is a great NFL quarterback because he can manage the offense and he's great on those deep digs, deep posts, accuracy wise. And that's really it. Same thing for Joe Burrow. He's gotten a little bit stronger, but he's kind of a really safe quarterback who can occasionally make those big plays. And I think that's why teams are more okay with not freaky talents that we're aware of in the preseason, but are okay with guys who are really efficient and really successful. And then the same token, not using the transfer portal as an excuse, but there's so much movement, not just at quarterback, but also offensive line and receiver that I think when 
players at quarterback have a little bit more talent around them, it can make a huge, huge difference. So I think it's a mix of all those things, but I think in large part, it's there's so much skill player talent right now and the offenses are much simpler than they used to be Mm -hmm. that I think mediocre to above average athletes at quarterback, both arm talent and movement ability are really more okay than they were, you know, even four or five years ago. All right. I want you to rank this upcoming quarterback class in relation to the last two. So I'll, I'll go first. Let's give a top five of the last three quarterback classes. So mine's going to be Trevor Lawrence one. I'm putting Bryce young two. Zach Wilson, three CJ Stroud, four Justin Fields, five. So this past year, 2022 class is just, they don't make the top five, none of them. But those are my top five out of the last three quarterback classes. How would you stack the guys in this, is this class? Is them? this pre-draft or, or what we know now? This is just pre-draft, like the pre-draft eval on those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rice and, and CG are really special. And I think Willis too. And, and I, I would say that Trevor and Zach would still be one-two just coming out of college. I still think Zach Wilson could be a really special player. But then the next three probably will be the three guys in this class, Bryce, CJ, and uh, and Will. I think Will Levis, you know, I think you and I talked on a, you know, Twitter spaces, you know, earlier about, mm-hmm. you know, Will Levis's comp is Josh Allen, but also we shouldn't comp players to Josh Allen anymore because he may be, you know, an outlier. But the same token, like Josh Allen, I'm saying Will Levis might be that special. I think he could make the strides this year, especially with the Kentucky team that I was just there at camp. Got a lot more young talent than people think right now. They could be a really talented team. So I would say it's it's Zach and Trevor, one, two. I really had a huge rate on Zach Wilson, still believe in him. But after that, Bryce, CJ, and Will, they're not perfect. None of those guys, I think, are A-plus prospects right now. But all of those guys could be first overall pick quality players. So you obviously just do college scouting. But as like a yeah. pro scout, you see a rookie year like Zach Wilson. So does that change how you feel about him to a degree? Are you like – you had said yes no. to high grade. Are you are you a and, little worried now? Or and I I think it's I think for Zach especially, he reminded me in some ways, not player comps, don't kill me yet, please. Um, to Pat Mahomes in the sense that I remember Pat in college at Texas Tech and then talking to people in Kansas City, like he was turning the ball over. And again, Pat had the benefit of not playing as a rookie the whole season, right? And except for the one week 17 game, I think. But but Zach and Pat are both guys that just had to test out their arm, test out their anticipation. They're going to make mis- They're going to purposely try tight window throws to see what they can get away with or how their timing, how their footwork fits in. And that's what I love about Zach so much is, is Zach was a guy that, hey, once he just like trial and error is this, like he could be a really special improvisation quarterback as well as a safe guy in the pocket, similar to how Pat and Kyler Murray are to that degree. So seeing Zach struggle – you know, I watched enough games and certainly had a huge grade in them, so I want to make sure he does well. There were a couple plays that I'm like, hey, that's concerning. Is that going to be something he can fix or is that something he's just not seeing? But in large part, Zach was doing things to try out for this year. I think year two will be a huge increase for him. Hopefully that talent around him stays successful. But um, but I'm still a believer in Zach Wilson. hasn't wavered at all for me. I do hate how you had to, like, couch your, you know, player comp to your comp to Patrick Mahomes there because we've seen so many like bad one-to-one yeah. comps of guys saying this guy is that guy that we can't just like compare a skill that they have to to one another right. we can't be like he does this that's kind of like Patrick Mahomes people would be like oh you're saying he's Patrick Mahomes it's like no like we're saying that that skill is kind of like Patrick Mahomes I just do hate that the fact that draft discussions gotten so uh I guess it's opened the door to so many people talking about it that and yeah. there's so many bad comps that you now have to couch everything and saying, I'm not trying to say he's exactly that guy. I'm saying he has parts of it. 
that are like that. The, the hard part for comp and comps really helpful. I was actually talking to a couple in the league about how much they use comps in their departments. But I think where I always get Tim and why I mentioned the Josh Allen thing is that Josh Allen, Pat Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, even they're probably outliers. Like they're probably guys that 90 out of a hundred variations of their life. They're not in the NFL, but just, they developed the right way. They had the right people around them. So that's why like the Will Levis, Josh Allen comp, like saying Will's going to be Josh is a huge leap, but a lot of the same skills, a lot of the same traits. Same for Zach Wilson, like that, a trial and error quarterback method with that kind of arm talent is, is not totally uncommon. We've seen it before to your point, but I'm not saying Zach's going to be Kyler Murray and Pat Mahomes. In fact, if he's good, he's probably very different than how those guys play right now. I like comps a lot because like scouting itself is literally comp. So you're having to envision how a guy is going to fare right. on an NFL football field. You know, something he's never done to obviously on a collegiate football field. How is it going to look then on an NFL field? And I do think comps are also very indicative when someone throws out a comp of like how much they actually know from a scouting perspective. Because when the comps are rough and like bad, you're like, oh, you're maybe not seeing it quite the same way I'm seeing it. So. Right. Right. And, and in comps, I mean, there, there are a lot of times meant to help you guide where that player might go, what that player might be. Again, for especially college, the NFL scouting, I'm saying what Will Levis will be in the NFL, not what he is right now. At Kentucky, you know, Will Levis right now cannot start tomorrow for an NFL team. He just can't. He's not even close, but he'll get there at some point for sure. What do you think is the hardest position of any in the NFL scout? In the NFL, like college NFL? Yeah, college pro. I think for me, it's, it's DB um, because college it, it's so set up for offenses to be successful and a lot of routes that receivers run on corners especially you got to kind of throw out and that's why we see a lot of nfl teams and and you know in my job as well just looking for the best athletes at db because it's it's not random but it's so hard to find these guys i think for you know when you get closer to the line of scrimmage it's usually easier to evaluate a little bit right even in terms of nickel players and strong safeties but when you're vertical there are in college, especially, there's not enough input of complex coverages to kind of combat the creativity on offense, in part because they're really hard to do, and that's why pros struggle with them as well, uh, but in part because we're in the college landscape and it's easier to install an offense because you're telling a guy, run a post route, a DB is like, hey, if he runs a post, do this, he runs a go, do this, right? So it's much harder. So I think it's it's really hard to evaluate DBs at a high level, and that's why we see so many sixth, seventh round picks make it, and first, second round picks take two years. It just, it's really hard. Yeah, there was that conversation back in like 2019, right, about the wide receiver position. Um, mm -hmm. And when like that class, which I thought was like a pretty talented class, all of them start to fall. You know, you only had Hollywood and Nikhil Harry go in the first round, but A.J. Brown goes mid-second. D.K. goes back into the second because that was that whole conversation of, do we know how to scout wide receivers, spread offenses? Do we know how to scout wide receivers? To me, the bigger thing was, I don't think we know how to, we knew how to scout corners against those spread yeah. offenses with what they were asked to do. And the studies that we've done at PFF show that over the last decade, like corner has been the worst drafted or the most inaccurately drafted of any position in the NFL just because like you can find the, the amount of guys that you can find fourth, fifth, sixth round uh, compared to second, third. It's almost the hit rates of those areas are almost indistinguishable. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why I think we've seen a lot of hit rates if I had to speculate, and you guys have to study more than I do, on uh, nickel corners, right? Because again, you're, you're doing more short area stuff. And Jacoby Durant, who was a fourth round pick for the Rams, again, another Shrine Bowl guy, had to get some Shrine Bowl love. But um, but he's a guy that is going to start and play early on. And, and he was easier to translate because you're not moving as far as distance. It's more confined route tree, et cetera. But it's it's hard. And as a scout, like I, we spent, I spent a lot of time, plus you know, as, as my friend Justice Moskata coined a long time ago, 
corner is a preventer position, just like offensive tackle. What that means is as a corner, if you play 60, you know, 50 snaps in a game and 45 are great and five are bad, and those five or five catches for 182 yards and two touchdowns, you're losing your job, right? Whereas a receiver, the other way around, if you have 45 bad snaps and five good ones, and that's that line, you know, you're a Hall of Famer. So that's why DB is so hard because you got to watch so many snaps and you got to get lucky on the right routes going against them and not having a, another teammate screw up. So it's difficult. Yeah, it's the most, you know, I obviously outside of quarterback, the most like high leverage of a position where one yep. one mistake, one mental lapse that will like for – for, you know, an off, even offensive tackle, calling them preventers, like one mental lapse is a sack. One mental lapse at yeah. corner can be 90 yards to the house. So, so yeah, yeah, it definitely is from that perspective. Like it leads to fluctuations in performance that are just random a, a lot of the times that you yeah. can't account for. So definitely agree there. All right, let's get into your scouting career, though. Some, mm -hmm. I obviously don't have all your draft boards enough from a scouting dating back. I've only seen the past <laughs> handful of your yep. of yours whereas mine are, mine are all out there to be uh scrutinized what's a, what's a call that you want back a scouting report that you wrote up whether it's way too high on a guy way too low on a guy that you want a do-over on um i would say and i use i forget what year he is maybe you'll know a top of your head but i want to do over just on the entire receiver class that was laquan treadwell and josh doxson and Corey Coleman that 15. year. I think it was like 2016, whatever it was. And if you look at the receiver drafts, 16. like before and after that, that ended up being such a telling year because I think that was the year we said, hey, you know what? Just big, tall, long guys is not the answer at receiver. And I was still in that mode of like, hey, you're under 190 pounds as a receiver, Pfft, not going to make it in the NFL. Like you got to be, you got to be AJ Green to be successful, right? And I was low on guys like Hollywood Brown, which I've learned a lot from that miss for sure, thinking like, and guy's too small. He can't play in the NFL. And, and the league has changed. The same thing for Laquan Treadwell. That one jumps out as like, I was positive he was going to be good. And I actually did some work for Minnesota that year. And it's funny, you know, you don't want to ever say a rookie's not going to make it. But sometimes you just, you go to a camp and you see a guy for a couple snaps and you're like, shit, not going to make it. So yeah. Treadwell's one that I think in a different, you know, 10 years earlier, you know, maybe he's a longtime NFL player, but in today's NFL in 20, whatever, 2016, 2017, wasn't going to make it. I do think that Randy Moss and Calvin Johnson really kind of skewed perception yeah. of like what people want at wide receiver for like a long time because yeah. everyone's looking for that guy when it's tough. It's tough at wide receiver to get by at that height. Like taller wide receivers are, a, it's literally a downside to be six foot four at the wide receiver position for a vast majority of the things you're asked to do. Calvin Johnson, he ran like a four three seven with someone else's shoes at the combine. Like again, that's where it comes to like outliers. I keep saying that over and over again, but like, don't compare anybody to Calvin Johnson. You'll be a lot, Randy Moss. You'll be a lot better off for it. Same thing for Lamar and Josh Allen. So you're absolutely right. I think we were looking for this prototype in an AJ Green and Calvin Johnson when we should have been saying, "Hey, are these guys able to win one on one routes or win against cover two, cover three, and what they're doing?" And that ended up being more guys like Tyree Kill and Hollywood Brown and less like Laquan Treadwell. So big miss by me. I what's a scouting call that you want, or that you want people to talk about more, that you are most proud of, that you called yeah. and no one else maybe did. Yeah, I mean Pat Mahomes. I, I'll, I'll live by that one for a long time. I had Jimmy Garoppolo early as well, and honestly, for both Pat Mahomes and Jimmy Garoppolo, the reason why we had both those guys, we had Pat Mahomes QB one coming into that season, not at the end of the year. Um, and same thing for Jimmy, we had him very high early on too. And in large part, one thing I've gotten to do over my career, and I, you have too, Mike, is talk to these guys, right? And for Pat, especially, I'll never forget it because I use I reference it all the time. I had to talk to him before his year, and I was asking him some real football stuff. And he was the first one to really show to me 
that like, hey, I know what I'm doing out there. Like I'm taking educated guesses. It's second and long. And I know if I throw the ball right here, it's going to be a catch, a spectacular catch or a drop, but not an interception, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe it's a worthwhile interception because it's third and long. And the, the fact that he was so thoughtful about what he's doing was really eye-opening for me. And I said, between the natural arm talent that he had, the flexibility of his release to all different types of things, and then the mental ability that he, Jimmy Garoppolo had as well, coming out of Eastern Illinois, like that's what I had the benefit of being really early on those guys. But there's a video out there somewhere of me saying, move aside Aaron Rodgers, Pat Mahomes will be the best quarterback for the next decade in the NFL. I got to find the video because it was a heck of a call back in whatever it was, 2019. That That is a... That is quite the call if you did call prior to that. Um, I, I will say this, or I'll ask you this, because you talked yeah. about him, the inter- interviewing him, talking with him, selling you. Um, yeah. We obviously at PFF, I don't get to do that a lot. Uh, we have some interviews with guys on the podcast, talk to them, get to know them a little bit, but like we don't get the access NFL teams do. But even at the same token, like I would put our draft boards for the past five years against NFL teams draft, or just NFL draft success in general, and say, do you think a lot of teams over – Val, over eval the mental aspect or how they feel about the guy part of the game as opposed to, I mean, you had all the knocks on Justin Herbert coming out that people just didn't want him in the building because of, you know, his personality or whatever. Didn't think he had the quarterback position. Do people over eval that stuff? Yeah, I think so. And I think the reason why is it's much more yes, no in NFL buildings than for us on the outside, right? More often than it, people don't usually drop by a round or two, right, on their grades. They just take them off. There's gone. And when guys slip that far, sometimes it's because not because everybody had that player two rounds lower. It's because everyone took that guy off their board and the team that didn't take him off the board knows they can get him later. And why I say that is because that's why guys surprisingly fall as much as they do. When you see like a medical issue, right? Again, oftentimes the team that drafts them didn't rule that player off with a medical issue. They just knew they can get him later. And that's where I think NFL teams kind of collectively can make some mistakes. I think the teams that are able to say, Hey, you know what? Let's, qualify this concern off field or, or medical stuff and take the guy appropriately. Not a lot of teams feel comfortable doing that in large part. I think people forget this sometimes, you know, NFL teams have, let's say eight draft picks on average, like they're looking to hire eight employees. They're looking to bring in eight people to be, you know, on their roster. They're not looking to play the draft game. Like we are and necessarily grab value. The England Patriots took a guy, Sam Roberts out of Northwest Missouri state at the Shrine of the Trine Bowl this year, because he could block field goals at an elite level. And they had a need there, right? So sometimes we forget, like, why from a team perspective while you're drafting. But I think that kind of collective ruling guys out certainly pushes guys down much further. And I think for quarterback and just general first-round picks, you're absolutely right, Mike. I I know teams that have ruled out players like, I won't say for why, but C.J. Mosley, Justin Herbert, like really talented longtime NFL players for reasons that we laugh about now, but because they're scared. And you can't make mistakes in the first round more than once as a GM, or that's how you get fired. I think that's a big reason why these guys fall probably too far. But yeah, there's some stuff you hear on players that you're just like, are you serious? That's why you're not going to take, you don't like Justin Herbert for that reason. Like grow up, man. So I, I have heard those, but I think oftentimes it's the former where it's just teams collectively ruling guys out and not many teams have that guy left on their board. See the, the thing, like the, the, job security thing for me for gms like they get long leashes though you know like i, I know yeah. that it seems like you always hear them like drafting scared or like doing these things i feel like gms get long leashes they really shouldn't have that fear of whiffing because should they still whiff you know they're still yeah the best guys still are whiffing 50 percent. But, but i think the real goal is right I, I, I was just a titans camp so i'm biased right but even the patriots they can cole strange now i'm not sure where you had cole strange i didn't think cole strange worth a first round pick but if he's just an NFL starter for his whole rookie contract, 
that's a really good value for anybody, right? Just getting a starter for five years is super helpful for any team. You don't have to have a star every time. I get a lot of teams view it that way. Like, you know what? I've got a couple stars on my team. The Patriots say we've got, you know, Damian Harris, Mac Jones, who's great. We got all these great receivers, et cetera. Like, let's just take the safe bets because we'll make it our free agents or other draft picks hitting. I think that's part of it too, but, but you're not wrong. I think teams sometimes get too risk averse and uh, they make mistakes that way. Yeah. I mean, even if he doesn't even play, still a better draft pick than at number 29 overall than Isaiah Wilson was. So, I mean, team still, <laughs> even John Robinson was one of the best drafting GMs, just guy didn't even yeah. play a snap. So it's draft is a funny thing. All right. Well, one last question. We'll leave you on this. What is a player that you, I guess we're high on or that you were a fan of that didn't work out in the NFL and you still cannot believe that they didn't work out. Like you, you do not know how their game did not end up translating. You know, I'll stick on quarterbacks because I've long said that, that two quarterbacks and I'll pick the second one as a longer answer. Um, but Sam Bradford and Blaine Gabbard are, I think, two of the lost quarterbacks of our generation. And I, I think Blaine Gabbard, I'll jump on him for a while. First off, Bradford, like I've seen Bradford throw a training camp. If you just saw Bradford throw a training camp, you'd be like, that's the best quarterback in the NFL. You know, what are we talking about? And I think the injuries obviously robbed him. But for Blaine, it's a great example of, of why situation can matter so much, right? And Blaine did not have a, a perfect college career in hindsight, actually looking at his scouting report and his stats, you'd be like, he got benched his last year at Missouri and and he just wasn't that accurate. But the talent that he had was so immense. But I remember I was at the draft when he got picked by the Jaguars and I was like, well, that's not going to work. Right, right away, it was like, that's not going to work out. And then talking to people in that building a year later, they were like, yep, like we had nothing around him, no facility to like make him a better quarterback, to put talent around him. We were throwing him out there, you know, by week, I think nine or 10. And then he just struggled there as well, too. So he's the guy that I think you play his career 10 times, like eight of them, he's a, a starting quarterback. And I think, you know, I know Kyle Trask at, in Tampa is struggling right now. Like, it wouldn't shock me at all if Blaine Gabbert's the heir apparent to Tom Brady in Tampa because he's that type of talent. So he's the guy that I think you play his career 10 times, two of those times, it happens the way it did. And eight of those times, he's an NFL starting quarterback making $100 million contracts for sure. So Blaine Gabbert, I love it. I wasn't doing draft. I've not given up. But I, I really could not believe Sam Bradford's the one that just like, I always thought at some point, you know, he was going to be in a league. Yeah. And I, yeah. I was like, okay, it's just going to happen. So that one yeah. could not believe. Eric? Thank you so much, man. Really appreciate the time. Cannot wait for this year's Shrine Bowl. Really looking forward to it. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it, Mike.